It's Sunday, it's 7, and it's such a pleasure to welcome you to the big broadcast, Radio Theater from WAMU 88.5. Hi everybody, I'm Murray Horwitz, and tonight, a couple of the best examples of movie stars who mastered the medium of radio. James Stewart in The Six Shooter, and Dick Powell in Richard Diamond, Private Detective. The annual USC-UCLA football game is coming up later this week, and we'll attend an earlier one, 71 years earlier, with Jack Benny and the gang. Plus Gunsmoke, Dragnet, Norman Corwin's One World Flight, and a somewhat mad scientist on the Hall of Fantasy. So please do me, and yourself, a favor. Put aside the cares and concerns of last week, it's over, and don't even think about thinking about next week till tomorrow. Just relax, settle in, and put your imagination to work here on your Sunday Night Oasis, The Big Broadcast. There's a famous Dorothy L. Sayers mystery called clouds of witness due to the plethora of characters who claimed to have observed the crime. Well, we've got a mystery for you now that could have been called clouds of suspects. Instead, it was titled the three for one matter. It's the October 22nd, 1961 episode of the CBS series. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Johnny Dollar. Mr. Dollar. Yes. This is Christian Albeck at International Life and Casualty in Boston. Well, Mr. Albeck, I haven't heard from you in three or four years. Uh, no. How are you? Fine. Just fine, Mr. Dollar. But I'm afraid I have a bit of a problem. Well, who hasn't? And I wonder if you could... Uh... What was that? Nothing. You were going to say? Uh, I wonder if you're free to come up here and see me right away. I don't know why not. As long as you're willing to pay my expense account and commission. And uh, maybe a little extra fee in addition. Well... That remains to be seen. Of course, there is a quarter-million-dollar policy involved. Say no more. I'm on my way. The CBS Radio Network brings you Mandel Kramer in the exciting adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account. America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator, yours truly, Johnny Dollar. account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to the International Life and Casualty Insurance Company, Home Office, Boston, Massachusetts. Following is an account of expenses incurred during my investigation of the three-for-one matter. Expense account item one, seven seventy-five, plane fare to Boston. Item two, two and a quarter for a cab to International's office in the little building at the corner of Tremont and Boylston, across from the Terrain Hotel. Come to think of it, it's not too far from station WEEI that carries the broadcast reports on these cases. Christian Albeck is in his late 40s, tall, blonde, lantern-jawed. His casual manner and rather bland expression belie a sharp, keenly analytical mind. I've always had the feeling that he might always be just one jump ahead of me. Sit down, won't you, Mr. Dollar? Thank you, Chris. Only, uh, why the mister? Well, after all, you are in Boston, you know. (laughs) 
Cigarette? Thank you. Yeah, it's barely known. I take it you come up here by plane. Mm-hmm. With an ulterior motive. I figured if I got here in time for lunch, I might persuade you to put the bill over at the old Union Oyster House. Well, why not? Afterwards, we can pick up a rental car for you. Oh? Yes. See, it'll be necessary for you to run up to Center Harbor in New Hampshire. Up there at Lake Winnipesaukee again. Yes, where you handled a case for us once before. Great. Huh? Well, it's pickerel, perch, smallmouth bass. Only why didn't you tell me that on the phone, Chris, so I could have brought along some fishing tackle? This time of year? Oh, that's right. I kind of lost my head. Now, why don't we go on over to the Oyster House, and while you're gorging yourself on seafood, I can tell you what this is all about. Fine. Another dozen on the half shell, Mr. Dollar? Oh, are you kidding? I've had it. <laughs> oh, I just hope I can make it up to Lake Winnipesaukee. I come to think of it. To what, Chris? To see if you can find out what's happened to a Mr. John Stuart Kirkman. Kirkman? Yes. He and his wife live on Red Hill Road up there at Center Harbor. He's a man of about 60, retired, worth quite a lot of money. I see. His wife telephoned me just before I called you this morning. She gave me no details, but it seems that Mr. Kirkman left the house sometime after dinner last evening, presumably to see a man on business of some kind or other. And, uh, well, she simply hadn't seen or heard anything of him since. A quarter million dollar policy, hmm? Yes, with a double indemnity clause. She's checked with this man that he went to see? Well, she doesn't know who it was. Well, what about the police up there? Um, Chief Mike Sharp, isn't it? Yeah. I talked to him this morning, too. He'll give you all the details, and he's happy you're on the case. Well, he thinks a lot of you, Johnny, uh, Mr. Dollar, and uh, he promises complete cooperation. Well, good. Uh, incidentally, now, um... Yeah? Uh, well? Uh, no. Nothing. I, uh... Well, you see what you think when you get up there. What I think about what, Chris? Forget it. No, no, no. Wait a minute. You have got an idea, maybe, about someone who might have helped? Mr. Kirkman disappear? I didn't say that. Now, don't start that again. Again? That other case up there, Winnipesaukee. If you'd told me your suspicions right at the beginning, it would have saved me a lot of trouble and your company a lot of expense. Yeah, but if I'd been wrong... But you were absolutely right. Yeah, quite possible that I'm wrong this time. Who do you suspect, Chris, of wanting to get him out of the way? Well, then, who is the beneficiary of this policy that he holds? His wife, Mona. Quarter of a million, hmm? Yeah. Or maybe double that. But I'm thinking of, well, three people, daughter, who might, and I use the word might, now mind him. Go on. Who are they? Well, it's Charles B. Hockaway. Who's him? Hockaway, a sort of um, junior partner for a while in Mr. Kirkman's investment business here in Boston. Before Kirkman retired, went up there to live in Center Harbor. Mm -hmm. What about him? Well, Hockaway borrowed a lot of money from him on a handshake, no contract. Never paid it back. For the simple reason that he's a completely impractical, incompetent wastrel. How much? Nearly $100,000, I understand. Mm. Anyhow, the last time I talked to Mr. Kirkman, he said he was going to take legal action, even if it meant complete ruin for Hockaway. Did he? I don't know. I do know that Hockaway was not only worried, but bitterly resentful. He was? Yeah, he said he'd really earned the money, which isn't true. That Kirkman didn't need it, and that he'd see him in Hades before paying a cent of it. And a couple of months ago, Hockaway quietly took a little cottage up there in Center Harbor. Do you think that in order to avoid paying off his debt, he would go so far as to... No, I didn't say that. 
Uh, then there's Mildred. Mildred who? Armstrong. She was Kirkman's first wife. When he divorced her, he made what was then a very generous settlement. But uh, later, when he began to get really wealthy and wouldn't add to what he'd given her, well, I just happen to know that she's been threatening him for years. Threatening to kill him? Now, Mr. Dollar, I didn't... All right, all right, you didn't say that. No. But she, too, has recently moved to Santa Harbor. Well, now, Chris... And finally, there's Tony Benson, who's turned up in Wolfsboro on the other side of the lake. And who is he? He's a fairly bright young fella. Basically, just a bomb. Just an irresponsible young... Now, Mr. Dollar, Tony has been in more scrapes. And I'll wager he's had at least a dozen different jobs in the last ten years. There's been absolutely no good in any of them. Right now, he's a sort of um, dental assistant for Dr. Porteous. And what's his beef? Mona, Mr. Kirkman's wife. Tony was in love with her once, or with her fortune, really, but uh, Kirkman beat him to it. I thought Kirkman himself had the money. It was hers that enabled him to build up his business, therefore his own fortune, to the point where he could retire in four years. Oh. Anyhow, I don't think Tony would stop at anything to get even. Now, wait a minute. Get even with Kirkman or his wife? Frankly, knowing the way that love can turn to hatred in such a case, I would have thought with Mona. Now, of course... Uh... Well, they're pretty thin motives, it seems to me, Chris, all of them. But you think that one of those three might possibly have decided to put Kirkman out of the way? No, but... I didn't say that. I only Okay, meant okay, to... Chris. Let's get out of here. Get me a car and I'll be on my way. Item three, 50 bucks deposit on a rental car. By the time I'd covered the 125 miles or so to Center Harbor, it was late afternoon. Police Chief Mike Sharp was out of his little office, so I left a note on the door, went over and checked in at the Garnet Inn. I wondered which of the people that Chris had mentioned I should contact first. If, that is, anything actually had happened to Mr. Kirkman. Yes, come in. Well, howdy, Mr. Dollar. Chief Sharp, nice to see you. I thought maybe it was you who'd moved in here when I saw that rental car out front. Here I am. About that Mr. John Stuart Kirkman, the man you come up here to look for? Yes. Might have saved yourself trouble, Mr. Dollar. Just found him myself. Oh, good. Found his body, rather. Mr. Kirkman's dead. Stone dead. Coming to that curve up ahead there. Right, Chief. Now, that is, unless you want the same thing to happen as happened to Mr. Kirkman. Uh, maybe you'd better stop along about here. Yes. I see those tire tracks on over the edge of the curve and on through the broken fence there beyond. Yeah. That's what happened to him, all right. Lost control. Mr. Curve went on over the edge. Yeah, there. Now, see how it hit the bottom down there? Yeah. 60 or 70 feet. Mm. Yeah, come along, Miss Dollar. That's uh, the step here. Yep. Footing's not so good on this side of the hill. Yeah, I see that. Uh, Who is that down there? Oh, Doc Higby. He's the coroner. 
I want him just to be sure that body's all right. How do you mean, all right? Well, it looks pretty obvious, like an accident, but you didn't have a chance to look at those tire tracks as careful as I did. Oh, I think I know what you mean about them, Chief. Do you? Yeah, there were no skid marks. They show that he tried to put on the brakes before going over. Ah, that's right. Those tracks are so clear, so plain, Mr. Dollar. You wonder if Kirkman wasn't dead before he hit the curb, hmm? It's a possibility. Yeah, maybe somebody killed him and propped him up behind the wheel and helped that car over the edge. Yes, sir. So, if Doc Higby has found any sign on him, any sign at all... Well, how about it, Doc? Well, not a mark, Chief Sharp. Not a single mark onto him. Except for the blow to his head that killed him when the car rolled over. You're sure of that, Dr. Higby? Yeah. Eh? I mean, there's no other mark that might possibly have accounted for his death. You're absolutely certain of that. Hmm? Now, just a minute, young man. Who is this young man talking to me like this? Now, 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 Doc. This is Mr. Johnny Dollar. He's kind of a special investigator. The Johnny Dollar? The insurance investigator? That's right. Well, now... Howdy, Mr. Donner. I'm mighty pleased to meet you. Well, thank you, Doctor, but, um... You'll have to pardon his sparking up that way, Mr. Dollar. I guess we folks around here have him spoiled. He's just not used to having someone question his professional opinion. Yes, sir. Oh, that's perfectly all right, and I'm glad to know you, Doctor. Well, but, uh... Uh, now, knowing how thorough you always are, Mr. Dollar, you see, I listen to all those reports on your cases over the radio, uh, mostly on WGAN and over to Portland and on WEEI down to Boston. Well, I'm glad to hear that, sir. So, I suppose, in spite of my opinion, in spite of the way this looks like an accident, uh, maybe I'd better do an autopsy. I think it might be a good idea, Doctor, because if he was killed before the car rolled on down here... I'll do it right away. If you two will help me get the body down to my car that's down below. Sure. Uh, in the meantime, Chief Sharp. Yeah, in the meantime, Mr. Dollar, just in case. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> there are three people I'd like to make certain are still about in these parts. Like Charles P. Hockaway, for instance? Well, yes. But how'd you know? And uh, perhaps Mildred Armstrong and Tony Benson? Yes, sir. Especially that Tony Benson over to Wolf's Bar. Okay. While you're rounding them up, I want a mechanic to look over the brake system on this car to find out, if possible, why it went over the edge. That's a good idea. While you and Doc take in the body, I'll get a hold of Frank Marshall over at the gas station to look at the brakes, and then I'll round up those people you mentioned. Fine. I didn't stick around to watch the autopsy, thank you, but uh, went back to the Garnet Inn. It was dinner time, and in spite of the hefty lunch in Boston, I was hungry again. But as I went to my room to wash up... It's funny, I guess I forgot to lock it. Oh, you locked it all right. What? Who are you? You're Johnny Dollar, aren't you? That's right. Well, I'm Tony Benson. Well. I saw the note you left on the door at Chief Sharp's office. I came over here to wait for you. Got tired of standing around, so I came up here and slipped the lock with a business card. Any objection? And, uh, if I decided that, uh, you should be held for breaking and entering... Well, it's a lot better than being held for murder, isn't it? Murder? Well, that's what that crazy old police chief would do in a minute if uh, he could cook up something wrong about the way old Kirkman's car went over that cliff. Oh, you know about it. Doesn't everybody? But I don't want anybody accusing me of murder. Why should they? Because they all think I had a grudge against Kirkman, that's why. Didn't you? No. It wasn't him that did me dirt. It was that, uh... Well, it was Mona that left me flat. 
If I had a grudge against anybody, it was against her, not him. Well, if you don't believe me, ask her. Maybe I will. Anyhow, when I found out you were here, at least I knew I'd get a fair shake for a change. Tony, you said murder. Hmm? What makes you think Kirkman was murdered when all the signs point to an accident out there? Hmm? Uh, well, uh... <laughs> now, now, listen, all, all I said was that old Chief Sharp would try and... Well, you know, cook up something or something just because he... Well, he doesn't like me. Maybe he has good reason. Yeah? Wait a minute. Johnny Dollar. My name is Mildred Armstrong, Mr. Dollar. Yes. I must see you right away. Oh, what about? You know very well what about. About John Kirkman. And I'm not the one who murdered... Oh, I mean, had him murdered. What makes you think he's been murdered, Miss Armstrong? Well, I... Well, he's dead, isn't he? Yes, he's dead, all right, but it looked like an accident. Oh. Oh, well, I, I didn't know. Then there won't be any silly suspicion of me. Well, should there be? I, I beg your pardon? Are you here in Center Harbor? Yes. Why? Well, then I think you'd better come on over here and see me. Now, just a minute. Or would you rather I had Chief Sharp bring you over? Very well, Mr. Dollar. I'll... I'll be over to see you. All right, now, Tony. So, maybe now you got a better suspect, huh? What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, if old Kirkman was murdered, I mean, what you said to that Armstrong dame. Now, look, if you want my opinion... No, thank you. you. Oh, now what? Mr. Uh, Johnny Dollar? That's right. Well, I'm glad to see you here. My name is... Tony! Charlie boy, come on in. Join the party. Mr. Hockaway, is it? Oh, yes. At this point, I guess I can only say I've been expecting you. I'm afraid I, I don't understand. Well, you came to tell me perhaps that... Uh, that I didn't murder John Kirkman. Yeah, that word seems to be getting pretty common around here. Uh, what's that? How do you know he's been murdered? Oh, I see. <laughs> A little slip of the tongue and you've immediately become suspicious. Well, don't, old man, because there's no reason to. What I meant was... Uh, well, you know. No, what did you mean, Mr. Hockaway? Well, just that if there should turn out to be anything suspicious about the, uh... <laughs> well, let's face it, Dollar. Kirkman and I were not on very good terms. Yes, so I understand. Careful, Charlie. You're sticking your neck out. But if there should be any question of murder, old man, uh, well, needless to say, I didn't, didn't do, do it. it. That's right. I'm glad you understand. Sit down, Hockaway. Well, uh, surely, Mr. Dollar... Chief? Yeah, this is Miss Armstrong, Mr. Dollar. Met her on the way over after I checked with Frank Marshall about the car. Oh, uh, won't you go on in, Miss Armstrong? Certainly. <laughs> well, Miss Armstrong. Yes, to where the other two are that I... Huh? Yeah. Where'd you find them, Mr. Dollar? Well, let's say they found me, Chief. Uh, have you checked with Dr. Higby? Yeah. Let's shut this door a little. Sure. Well? Looks like we were wrong. Doc says it was the accident killed Mr. Kirkman, no doubt about it. So all this roundup of suspects... Uh... Chief, what did uh, Frank Marshall say about the brakes on the car? He went over it with a fine-tooth comb, Mr. Dollar. Nothing tampered with, no loose connections, nothing wrong at all. I see. Well, the one thing... There was no fluid in the brake lines. What? You know, that copper tube in that carries the fluid... Oh? But only because of a tiny little leak, a little hole so small that even his smallest drill wouldn't fit in it. That car's pretty new. Yeah. 
So it must have been just a defective piece of that tubing that let fluid leak out. Wait a minute. Hold everything. Uh -huh. Chief. Yeah? Look, go on in there and keep an eye on the suspect while I go over and take a look at that car, will you? Yeah, but I thought the suspect. That's right. But who? Which one? Judging by the way they all descended on me as though to make sure I wouldn't suspect them, it could be any one of them. But you just sit tight right here and we'll see. Hi, Tommy. See you in the morning. Now, uh... Yes, Frank? Well, like I told Chief Sharp, Mr. Dollar, must have been an accident. These brake lines on this car have been tampered with, and uh, I would have known it right away. Well, I'm sure you would, Frank. Sure. Any wrench or other tool been put on any connections, any bleedle lines, I'd have noticed. Kind of it would have disturbed the mud from that last rain we had. Would have left a mark. Mm -hmm. There's no saw marks, anything like that, anywhere on that copper tubing. And I also checked the master cylinder and all four wheel cylinders, too. Well, then how do you account for no fluid in the lines? Well, now, I thought about that myself. Count if I'd checked the fluid level last time I did a lube job on this car last week. The chief said that there is a small hole in one of the lines. Oh, yes, sir. It's a defect in the tubing. Leastwise, it's much too small for any drill point. Is it? Oh, yes, sir. And I know because I got drill points in my kit all the way down to 128th of an inch. And the hole's a lot smaller than that. Mm. Is it all right if I get under and take a look? Oh, sure. Go ahead. Here, you can use this crawler here. Just lay down, roll under. Good. Do you have a flashlight? Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, right here. Is there any kind of a magnifying glass around here? Yeah, sure. You can use this little pocket magnifier if you want. Okay, fine. The hole in that copper tubing that carries the brake fluid was tiny. But under the magnifying glass, it was all too obvious that someone had drilled it there. And remember this. Where an ordinary metal drill leaves a burr, a bit of metal shaving on the edge of a hole that it's cut. Here, there was none. See it under there? Too small for any kind of drill. Much too small. Any kind? Sorry, Frank. That's where you're wrong. Oh, howdy, Mr. Dollar. Chief. Ah, where you been, Dollar? Not digging up another suspect for the murder that wasn't a murder after all? Yes, the chief has just told us it was an accident due to faulty brakes. All right, it's uh, it's all over. It's all settled uh, now. So you see, Mr. Dollar, I told you there was no cause for suspicion. Right. So come on, let's get out of here. Just huh? one question first. Yeah. What is it, Mr. Dollar? What is it? Tony? Yeah? You're a dental assistant, aren't you? Well, yeah, that's right. Then you ought to be more careful with the equipment. Now, what do you mean by that? Oh, don't you remember what you did with this dental drill that you borrowed from the office? Well, but... This tiny drill that you used to drill a hole in that brake line. No. You don't remember where you put this drill without bothering to clean it? Without bothering to clean off the chips of copper on it? After you used it on the brake line? Well, Tony? You're pretty smart, you know. No. Just smart enough. So, once again, it's up to the courts. And how about the switch on this one? I mean, the logical suspect being the logical suspect for once. Expense account total, including board and room, mileage on the rental car, and the trip back to Hartford, plus incidentals, of course, eighty-one fifty. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Now, 
here is our star to tell you about next week's story. Next week, one of the cleverest ways to work a racket that ever tripped up a crook. Join us, won't you? Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Johnny Dollar is written by Jack Johnstone. Produced and directed by Bruno Zerato Jr. Musical supervision by Ethel Huber. Johnny Dollar is played by Mandel Kramer. Also featured in our cast were Leora Thatcher as Mildred, William Mason as Tony, Robert Donnelly as Chris, Robert Dryden as the police chief, Reynold Osborne as Charles, Arthur Cole as the doctor, and Bill Lipton as Frank. Be sure to join us next week, same time, same station, for another exciting story of yours truly, Johnny Dollar. This is Art Hanna speaking. Johnny gets to the bottom of it, as he usually does, in the three-for-one matter, a fall 1961 episode of yours truly, Johnny Dollar. It came to you from the big broadcast on WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. This coming Friday, November 19th, is an anniversary worth being marked by all Americans. It would have been the 100th birthday of a national hero. He was certainly a hero on the baseball diamond, but that was just the starting place for his indomitable spirit. He was always, always committed to doing what he could for other people. Hello, I'm Roy Campanella of the Brooklyn Dodgers urging every one of you to give more than ever before to the 1954 March of Dimes. Let's all dig down deep and do our part in the fight against infantile paralysis. Send your contributions to your local March of Dime headquarters today. Roy Campanella, veteran of the Negro Leagues, the Mexican League, the Venezuelan League, and finally, the National League. We could go on forever about his baseball accomplishments, but let's summarize them, however inadequately, with what's engraved on his plaque in the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. Most Valuable Player, National League, 1951, 53, and 55. Established records for catchers, most home runs in a season, most runs batted in. Set NL record for chances accepted by catchers for most consecutive years. Tied record for most years in putouts. Caught 100 or more games for most consecutive years. Led in fielding average for catchers 1949, 52, 53, and 57. It was just after that 1957 season, in January of 1958, that Mr. Campanella lost control of his car, on a patch of ice near his home on Long Island. An operation saved his life, but he was paralyzed until his death some 35 years later. The story of Roy Campanella's courage began much earlier, though, when he became one of the first half-dozen black players to reintegrate Major League Baseball, which had been self-segregated for more than 60 years. A milder man than Jackie Robinson... He was credited by his African-American teammate, Don Newcomb, with having been an essential moderating influence in their monumental struggle against racism. Books, 
movies, and television shows have chronicled Roy Campanella's triumphs in the years following his accident. He never showed an ounce of self-pity or even of pessimism. Just over a year after his crash, on May 7, 1959, he appeared in Los Angeles, where his beloved Dodgers had moved, for an exhibition game against their old World Series foes, the New York Yankees. As he was wheeled onto the field by his Hall of Fame former teammate Pee Wee Reese, yet another future Hall of Famer, the broadcaster Vin Scully, described the event on L.A. radio station KMPC. Friends, right now, the Yankees have been asked to leave the field, and the Dodgers are not out on the field. For right now, the Coliseum, all of the lights will be turned out as Pee Wee Reese wheels the chair that holds Roy Campanella across the first base foul line and heads him towards the pitcher's mound. The lights are going out. This final tribute to Roy Campanella. The lights will be lowered, and everyone at the ballpark, 93,000 people, are asked in silent tribute to light a match to Roy Campanella. And we would like to think that as 93,000 people light the match, there would be 93,000 prayers for a great man. The lights now are starting to come out like thousands and thousands of fireflies. Starting deep in center field, glittering around to left, and slowly the entire ballpark lighting up with individual lights. And Roy Campanella, as the years go back, standing off to the right is Pee Wee Reese. Sea of lights at the Coliseum, perhaps the most beautiful and dramatic moment in the history of sports. Let there be a prayer for every light. And wherever you are, maybe you in silent tribute to Campanella can also say a prayer for his well-being. Roy Campanella, for thousands of times, made a trip to the mound to help somebody out. A tired pitcher, a disgusted youngster, a boy who perhaps had his heart broken in a game of baseball. And tonight, on his last trip to the mound, the city of Los Angeles says hello to him. Listen. Maybe the best account of Roy Campanella's greatness comes from reading between the lines of his autobiography, and you can tell a lot from its title, It's Good to Be Alive. It was published that same year, 1959. He spoke at a book and author luncheon, a program that was broadcast over public radio station WNYC from 1948 until the mid-1970s. Here is the host, Maurice Dolbier, Introducing the author in 1959. Here is the man whom President Eisenhower has described as an example of what man can do if he refuses to quit, and who describes himself, quite simply, as a lucky guy. Roy Campanella. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here this afternoon. I didn't think I'd be able to make it. I haven't been too well lately. I would like to say I, I really don't know where to start. I have so many starts. 
baseball, I've loved. It's done everything in the world for me and my family. The best part about this book that I get quite a kick out of is the rehabilitation program. I never thought that I'd wind up in a wheelchair, but I thank God that he's given me faith to sit in one and can take it. Now to get a glass of water, I have to, I'll ask my little daughter, Princess, go get me a glass of water, please. And off she goes. She knows how to give, and she's only six. It's something that uh, if you tell yourself good things, I think you can bear anything. But if you tell yourself that things are all against you, then you're going to be hurting. You're not worried about what people say. It's what you tell your own self. There was a time I couldn't move my arms. I couldn't move nothing. Someone had to feed me. I'll never forget I did a television show with Dave Garraway in the morning in the Institute. And uh, he asked me uh, what progress had I made. And I said, Dave, I'm able to pick up a piece of bread. Doesn't sound like much, but it was the world to me. The first thing I picked up was a piece of bread. Now I can pick up a glass with water in it. I haven't wet myself yet, but uh, I'm expecting to. But, uh, but uh, being able to get around, that, that's not too hard. You know, uh, faith means so much to you. And when I say that, I'll go back to a night. That was one of the toughest nights that I've ever went through. I spent a miserable night for a while until I remembered back. My mother had always learned me to say the 23rd Psalm with my prayers every night. And I said the 23rd Psalm until I just talked myself to sleep. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And I did. I woke up the next morning. I felt pretty good. And I carried on from there. I tell you, it's, it's, it's something that a little faith and talking to yourself the right way, I think you can do anything. And if you can accept this, you can accept anything. And it's not that hard. You know, a lot of us in wheelchairs try to hide. You don't have to hide. I... Try to get around to show them that you still can get around. I've talked to quite a few of them. And it's not, it's not a real tough story. It's something that has happened in life. But just like I say, you never realize it until it happens close to you or to you. You look at it in the paper and just turn the page. Well, I only hope that I can help some of the youngsters, and some of the older folks. To get off the rehabilitation part, I'd like to say a few things about baseball. I've played it, and I've put my best effort forward every time I went on that field. I tried to be a gentleman and a good sport. I think it has paid off 
It has helped me so much since I've been hurt that so many people have taken an interest to write me, to pay tribute to me, in that ball game that they had in Los Angeles, the largest crowd ever to see a ball game in the history of baseball. And the best words I could tell those people at night when I made a speech, I thank God that I'm alive to be here to be able to see it. Baseball has done that for me. It made me quite a gentleman. It's helped my family quite a bit. And the best rehabilitation you can have is a good home and be able to have a job to support your family. Nothing else matters. Thank you. An American icon, Roy Campanella, addressing a book and author luncheon on WNYC in New York in 1959. Roy Campanella lived nearly half his life in a wheelchair and passed away in 1993. He would have turned 100 years old this coming Friday. It's the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. The Los Angeles Coliseum that hosted that Roy Campanella tribute game in 1959 at the time could hold more than 100,000 spectators. It was commissioned exactly 100 years ago and completed in 1923. After a few renovations over the years, its capacity is down to a mere 77,000. But this Saturday, it'll be the site, as it is every other year, of the annual football game between the University of Southern California and the University of California at Los Angeles. The USC-UCLA rivalry has always been a classic one, and in 1950, Jack Benny made it the setting of one of his classic comedy shows. All of his regular cast members are on hand, including Eddie Rochester Anderson, always getting the better of Mr. Benny, despite his servant's role, and the Yiddish-accented stereotype Mr. Kitzel, played by Artie Auerbach. It'll help you to know that the actors Ronald and Benita Coleman were Mr. Benny's next-door neighbors. You'll hear a Dennis Day impersonation. You'll also hear Mel Blanc's famous voice recreating the sound of the ancient Maxwell automobile. And there are references to the May Company department store, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, the Yale University Whiffenpoof song, drive-in restaurants, and the very shapely early CBS TV star Faye Emerson and her soon-to-be husband, the bandleader Skitch Henderson. At the center of it all, though, are Jack Benny's comic miserliness and vanity, including his insistence that he's only 39 years old. From November 26, 1950, and CBS, it's the Lucky Strike program starring Jack Benny. Strike program starring Jack Benny with Mary Livingston, Phil Harris, Rochester, Dennis Day, the Sportsman Quartet, and yours truly, Don Wilson. (laughs) 
Ladies and gentlemen, yesterday USC and UCLA met in their annual football classic. So let's go out to Jack Benny's house a few hours before the game. Uh, we better hurry, Jack, or we'll miss the kickoff. Yeah, let's go already. Uh, just a minute. I want to copy the lineups out of the paper. Here's a pencil, boss. Thanks. But, Jack, you can buy a program when you get to the Coliseum. Why do that when the lineups are right here in the paper? Now, let's see. Well, it's silly to copy it. Why don't you just cut them out? Because we have to put the paper back on the Coleman's porch. <laughs> yeah. Now, let's see. Here's UCLA's lineup. Moomaw, Narleski, Flynn, Strohshine, Livingston. Livingston? Mary. That's Cliff Livingston. Oh. I, th <laughs> I thought it was your sister, babe. <laughs> No, no, Jack. Babe is with the Green Bay Packers. Oh, yes, I forgot. <laughs> Livingston, Mitchell, Cogswell. I used to play football when I was in high school. Really, Dennis? What position did you play? Bent over like the rest of them. <laughs> Livingston, Mitchell, Cogswell. Gee, I'll never forget our big game. I was the quarterback, and there was just a few seconds to play. The score was tied, and we had the ball on their one-yard line. It was the first down, so I called for the water boy. What? While everybody else was drinking, I ran for a touchdown. <laughs> but, Dennis, that doesn't count. I know. I forgot the ball. <laughs> uh, but, Dennis, how could... Wait a minute, Mary. Wait a minute. I'll take it. Dennis, did you also play football in college? No. You're sure you didn't play college football? No, why? Well, some years ago in a Rose Bowl game, a player ran 80 yards in the wrong direction, and I thought it might have been you. <laughs> now, let's see. Well, that was my father. <laughs> well, at least I had it in the right family. <laughs> Now, let's see. I've got the lineup copied. Rochester, don't forget to put the paper back on the Coleman's porch. Yes, sir. And did you make the sandwiches? Uh-huh, and I put your Ovaltine in a whiskey bottle like you told me to. Uh, Ovaltine in a whiskey bottle? When Mr. Benny takes his three o'clock nap, he wants people to think he passed out. <laughs> Never mind. Did you pack my binoculars, Rochester? No, I thought you'd rather carry them. Here. Thanks. Jack, when did you buy those binoculars? When I got my television set, I used them for watching Faye Emerson. <laughs> I stopped when she brought Skitch Henderson on. <laughs> uh, hand me the basket, Rochester. Come in. Well, Mr. Kitzel. Hello, Mr. Benny. I just dropped by to return this roasting pan you loaned me for Thanksgiving. Oh, good, good. Did you have a nice Thanksgiving dinner, Mr. Kitzel? Oh, it was wonderful. Thanksgiving is the one day in the year that all my wife's relatives gather together, unfortunately, at my house. <laughs> Why, Mr. Kitzel, you sound a little sarcastic. Oh, not intentional. I oh. love having all our relatives for dinner, excepting my wife's brother. Is he a glutton? A big appetite, huh? Oh, appetite. He eats like there's no tomorrow. 
Oh, oh, Mr. Kitzel, you're joking. Joking, he says. Mr. Benny, he sat down and had six portions of turkey, three helpings of cranberry sauce, eight portions of dressing. To the yams, he went back full time. Gravy, you could swim in it. And the rolls, Einstein couldn't count it. Gosh, I bet he didn't have room for dessert. That he had first. He wasn't taking any chances. Oh. But mad I can't get at him because he and my wife happens to be twins. Twins? Well, uh, do they look alike? Fortunately for both of them, no. <laughs> oh, well, Mr. Kitzel, we're going to the football game. Would you like to join us? No, I'd love to, Mr. Benny, but I want to get home before my brother-in-law leaves. Why? He may get sick, and this I got to see. <laughs> Goodbye, Mr. Kitzel. Ah, <laughs> uh, what Mr. Kitzel goes through on Thanksgiving. Hey, Mr. Benny, why didn't you invite us over for Thanksgiving dinner this year like you always do? Well, I intend to do, Dennis, but I had a little trouble with the butcher. Well, every time you go to buy something, you have trouble. Well, this time it wasn't my fault. Turkeys were so expensive that when I started to dicker with the butcher, he got mad, handed me an egg, and said... Here, take this home, sit on it, and hatch your own turkey. <laughs> Smart Alec Butcher. Turned out to be a duck. <laughs> 31 days yet. <laughs> well, come on, kid. I had lived that. Well, come on, kids. Let's, let's leave for the game. Huh? Oh, I'm ready. Oh, by the way, Mr. Benny, which team are you going to cheer for? Uh, UCLA. Why? Well, I live in Beverly Hills near the college, so it's the neighborly thing for me to cheer for the UCLA team. And besides, he washes their jerseys. Yeah, those grass stains are murder. See, I hope UCLA wins. Well, I'm going to be cheering for USC. Who are you going to root for, Dennis? Notre Dame. <laughs> Dennis, Notre Dame isn't even playing. I know, but this year they need all the cheers they can get. <laughs> For a minute, I thought you were going to have a silly reason. Now, come on, let's go out and get in the car, Gaston. Say, Jack, those trees on your lawn sure look beautiful. Don't they, though? I say, Benita, where's the morning paper? Oh, my goodness. I... If that Benny fellow bothered... Dennis, the... cut that out! <laughs> What a kid. You know, Dennis, sometimes you're going to... Hey, Jackson, Jackson! Huh? Jack, it's Phil. Hi, Phil. Hiya, Livy. What are you doing over here at King Solomon's Mine? <laughs> Phil, not so loud. Remember, you're in Beverly Hills. Stop bragging about it. Some place is Beverly Hills. Why, what's the matter? I was driving down the street, stuck out my hand to make a left turn, and someone stole the olive out of my martini. <laughs> That's a shame, Phil. And after you took it sightseeing all the way from Encino. <laughs> hey, Phil, that's a beautiful car you're driving. Is it new? Yeah, brand new Cadillac. I bought it for Alice. Thought I'd surprise her. You? You bought a car for Alice? Yeah, them joint bank accounts are wonderful. <laughs> Phil, 
when Alice finds out I learn how to write my name, she'll kill me. Oh, you know now. Yeah. You know how to write. Huh? Well, I can't believe it. Go ahead, Phil. Let me hear you spell your name. Okay. P-H-I-L-H-A-R-I-S. Phil, you left out an R. Oh, oh, yes. H-A-R-I-S-R. <laughs> Phil, Phil, my only regret is that I have but one band leader to give to NBC. <laughs> Say, Phil, we're going to the football game. Why don't you join us? I'd like to live, but I can't. Well, so long, kids. See you later. Goodbye, Bye, Phil. Phil. Oh, wait, kids. Don't forget to listen to me Monday night. I'm going to be on the Lux Radio Theater. Lux? L-O-X. <laughs> that's locks. Well, that's closer than I got with Harris. <laughs> yeah, closer, closer. Go on, Well, let's go, kids. Is everything all ready, Rochester? Yes, sir. Come on, come on. Let's get in the car, everybody. Say, Jack, your car looks much nicer. Thanks, Mary. You even got new seat covers. That's the top. It sags a little. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, come on, Dennis, Mary. Hop in. Go ahead, Rochester. Start the car. Yes, Rochester, why is the motor spitting like that? We can't stand each other. <laughs> oh, stop. Try it again. Yes, sir. There we are. The motor was just cold. Uh-oh. What's the matter, Rochester? I forgot to bring the sandwiches. Well, it's too late now. Maybe after the game we can stop and get something to eat. Okay, Jack, but this time let's go to a restaurant instead of a drive-in. But don't you like drive-ins, Mary? Sure, but the last time Jack drove into one, the girl put the tray on the door and the car turned over. <laughs> it did not. Now, come on, kids, let's enjoy the ride. By the way, Dennis, what are you going to sing on the program this week? Oh, it's called All My Love. Would you like to hear me sing it? Sure, Dennis. That would be nice while we're driving along. Now, go ahead. Go ahead and sing. And wait a minute. Mary, Mary, did you drop something? Then what are you bending over for? I'm hiding till we pass the May Company. Well, well, go ahead and sing, Dennis. Go ahead. Don't you 
I recall my life. I've waited all my life to give you all my love. Oh, I love you so. Don't you ever let me go. Good, Dennis, especially the finish. I never knew you could hit such a high note. Neither did I. When I came to it, the spring in the seat broke through. <laughs> as long as you hit it, that's all. It... Mary, you can get up now. We passed the May Company. I'm ducking for the one on Crenshaw. We passed that one, too. Oh, Rochester, we're getting closer to the Coliseum. You better start looking for a place to park. Uh, there's a parking lot, 25 cents. Yeah. There's one, 50 cents. Keep driving, Rochester. Uh, but, Jack, the lots close to the Coliseum charge $2 for parking. Well, it's worth it. Look at all the walking it saves. If you want convenience, you've got to pay for it. Rochester, drive into this lot. The $2 one? Yes. Come on, kids. Oh, here comes the attendant. Oh, hello, Mr. Benny. Hello, Joe. How's business? Very good. I'll bring the money over to your house tonight. <laughs> good. Come on, kids. Uh, Jack, do you own... Come on, come on. We'll be late for the game. Dennis, don't lag behind. Oh, I'm coming. Gee, with a lot of people going to the game. Jack, maybe you ought to give Dennis his ticket. He may get lost in the crowd. No, he won't get lost. I've been holding his hand ever since we left the parking lot. How can you be holding Dennis's hand? He's on the other side of me. Well, I've been holding... Oh, oh, pardon me, madam. Oh, that's all right. I rather enjoyed it. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Are you going to see the football game? Oh, yes. My boy is playing today. Oh, really? What does he play? The tuba. <laughs> The tuba? Oh, oh, he's in the band. Yes. Maybe you've heard of him. Big Mouth McDonald. <laughs> oh, well, I'll, I'll watch for him at the half. You can't miss him. On low notes, he drools a little. <laughs> I'll find him. Goodbye. Come on, kids, let's hurry. We don't want to miss... We don't want to miss the kickoff. Say, Mary, these seats aren't bad, are they? No, they're fine. Can you see all right, Dennis? Dennis, 
Now, where is Dennis? Attention, please. Will Mr. Jack Benny please report to the lost and found department? <laughs> I will not. Let him stay there. The last time I take that kid anyplace. Every time we go, we do... I always have that problem. Jack, look. They're getting ready to start the game. Yeah. The teams are lining up. Attention, please. Mr. Benny, will you please come to the lost and found department? He's driving us nuts. <laughs> Jack, go get Dennis. I'm not going to leave now. Here comes the kickoff. <whistles> Mary, Mary, look at that ball go. What a kick. It's going uh, way Sorry way... to bother you, fella, but you're sitting in my seat. Huh? That seat belongs to me. Would you mind moving? Well, you must be mistaken. My ticket says row 72, seat 4, and this is it. Yeah, well, that's what my ticket says, so if you don't get out of the seat, I'll sit on your lap. Look, mister... Uh, come on, come on, get out of the seat or I'll punch you right in the nose. Oh, yeah? Mary, please. <laughs> I'll handle this. Oh, you will, huh? Mister, let go of my lapel. You don't have to get that excited. Now, wait a minute. I'm sure the usher can straighten it out. Oh, there's one. Oh, usher. Usher. Yeah. Need. Look, Usher, I have a ticket for row 72C4, and this man has a ticket for the same seat. How did that happen? I don't know, but won't it be cozy? <laughs> Never mind that. What are you going to do about it? Well, if you like, you can sit in seat 6, row 12, on the 50-yard line. Oh, is that seat vacant? It ought to be. It's in the Rose Bowl. <laughs> Stop being so smart. You are, without a doubt, the most stupid, inefficient, blundering... When you say that, smile. Why? We're on television. <laughs> well, that's the last straw. I've got a good mind to You take... lay a hand on me and I'll pull the cork out of your oval tee. <laughs> oh, get out of here. Mary, where's that other man? He's gone. Good. Come on, we want a touchdown. We want a touchdown. Jack, stop yelling. It's timeout. Oh. <laughs> Jack, look. The cheering section is getting up. Oh, yes. They're rooting for both teams. Don Wilson must have had something to do with that. Yeah. Jack! Jack, they're starting to play again. Yeah. All right, get your hot dogs. Get your red hots here. Hot dogs. Mary, you want a hot dog? No, thanks. Oh, I'll have one of them, mister. Yes, sir. One hot dog coming up. Would you like relish? Relish, yes. Chopped onion? Uh-huh. Mayonnaise? Yes, yes. Chili sauce? Yes. You'll have to get them someplace else. All I got is mustard. <laughs> Just give me the hot dog. UCLA's got the ball. Yeah, look at that Marletsky move. Wow. What a tackle they threw on. Jack. Jack, look, he's still lying there. Must have knocked the wind out of him. Get up. Get up. The grass is staining your jersey. 
attaboy. Attention, Mr. Benny. Please, please come and get him. <laughs> you can't do this to us. How many Irish songs can we listen to? Jack. Jack, you better go and get Dennis. Oh, all right. Pardon me. Pardon me. Excuse me. Excuse me. Peanuts, popcorn. Get your hot buttered popcorn here. Hello, Sonny. Hello, Mr. Benny. We're doing great. Good. If, uh, if you get stuck with any, cry a little. <laughs> I'll see you later. Now, let's see. Let's see. Where's the lost and found apartment? I'll ask this fella here. Oh, pardon me, mister. Can you tell me where the lost and found apartment is? Huh? No, I'm a stranger here. Well, I... I know... Wait a minute. I've seen you before. What's your name? Stavoni. John L.C. Stavoni. Well, Mr. Savoni, don't you remember me? No. But you must. Remember one day you stopped me on the street about a year ago, asked me for a dime for a cup of coffee, and I gave you 50 cents. Holy smoke, is Jack Benny? <laughs> well, I thought maybe you'd forgotten me. Oh, no. I tell all my fraternity brothers that you're my friend. Fraternity? Mr. Savoni, for a college man, what's happened to you? I'm a poor little man Now look, look. Look, Mr. Savoli. You're my pal. You can call me John. Well, thank you. Now, John, you're always short of money. How did you manage to get into the Coliseum? Well, I tell you how it happened anyway. I was walking down the street. I wasn't doing anything. Just walking down the street. I didn't feel like doing anything. Just walking down the street. And a fellow comes up to me and says, Hey, you. I said, Who? He said, You. I said, Me? He said, Yeah! He said, you want to buy a ticket to the football game? I said, how much you want for the football ticket? He said, three bucks. So I gave him the three bucks and I came to the football game. But look at you're always broke. Where'd you get the three dollars to buy this ticket? While we were standing there talking, it got kind of chilly. So I put my hand in his pocket. <laughs> At least you gave the man his money back. Did you take anything else? No, but he gave me his card. Card? Let me see it. Hmm. J. Edgar Hoover. <laughs> J. Edgar Hoover? Yeah. 
You made me so nervous. (laughs) (laughs) Look, Mr. Mr. Savoli, why don't you get some ambition? Go out and find yourself a job. Settle down. Get married. Oh, I was married once, but my wife threw me out. Well, why would she do a thing like that? I don't know. I was just hanging around the house. I wasn't doing anything. I see what you mean, yes. So long, Mr. Saboni. So long. I wonder where... Oh, Jack, Jack. Huh? Did you find Dennis? No, and I'm not going to bother. Come on, let's go back to our seat. What seat? The game is over. It is? What was the score? 39 to nothing. 39? Oh, isn't that cute? I'll bet they did that just for me. (laughs) Come on, Mary, let's go home. We're a little late. Good night, folks. Be sure to hear Dennis Day in a day in the life of Dennis Day. Next week, Amos and Andy will be our special guests. John L. C. Savoni was played by Frankie Fontaine. Stay tuned for the Amos and Andy show that follows immediately. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Jack Benny, from football season in 1950 and from the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arald Bailey is our co-producer. Mike Kidd and Barnaby Bristol are our audio engineers. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University, celebrating 60 years. In HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. I'm not going to announce the title of tonight's Gunsmoke episode, because it's, it's really kind of a spoiler. I'll just say that it's one of those stories where a stranger comes to town and things happen. It's the May 21st, 1955 edition of the CBS series Gunsmoke. Gunsmoke. Around Dodge City and in the territory on West... There's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gun Smoke, starring William Conrad. Transcribed story of the violence that moved west with young America. And the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. The first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job. And it makes a man watchful. And a little lonely. Thank you.
Shuster. Well, well, hi, Miss Kitty. Hey, look what I got. Well, what about it? Why, that's a whole dollar, Miss Kitty. Well, congratulations, Chester. I borrowed it off Mr. Dillon. He's outside there talking to some fella. Huh? I'd be mighty proud if you'd have a beer with me, Miss Kitty. Well, you know I don't like to drink at the bar, Chester. Well, we can sit down. And I'm tired of sitting. I'll have a beer with you right here. All right, that's fine. Uh, Sam? Yeah? Uh, draw a couple beers for me and this lady. Well, sure. Coming up, Chester. Chester, you talk about me like I was a stranger around here. What do you mean? This lady. Why, I always think of you as a lady, Miss Kitty. Uh, well, I mean, I don't never... I... Well, thank you, Chester. Here. Here's your beer. Here's your money, Sam. Okay. Oh, my, it looks nice and cold, don't it? You look like you're about to swim in it, Chester. That's right, I'd like to. Hey, Kitty. <laughs> hmm? They told me your name's Kitty. It is. Well, then why don't you say hello? Hello. Let's drink, Chester. Now, that ain't no way to act. All right, now leave her alone, mister. I didn't come over here to leave her alone. Stop that. What? What do you think? No, Chester, I'll handle this. Get out of the way, Miss Kitty. Chester. Get out of the way, I said. It's all right, Kitty. I'll see you afterwards. I'm going. And I know where, too. Your move, stranger. Well, go ahead. I guess you don't know who I am, do you? Stranger is good enough for me. Don't be a fool. We ain't fighting over me. Wait till you hear my name. It's Shin. Hank Shin. Oh, mine's Chester Proudfoot. You mean you never heard of Hank Shin? No. Anybody ever hear of Hank Shin? No. Who's he? Yeah, nobody never heard of you. Now, fighter, get out. There must be somebody. You heard him. Custom. No, sir. This is my fight, Mr. Dillon. I interfere in all fights. You know that. But he insulted a Yeah, lady. she told me. But there isn't going to be any gunplay over it. It better not be. That's right, stranger. So you get out of here. You don't know who you're talking to. Hey, Marshal. Marshal? Yeah, what is it, Davy? I followed you in here, Marshal. It's a good thing, too. Oh, why? This here is Hank Shin. I've been telling him that. I never met him, but I've seen him. So... Well, maybe you never heard of him here, Marshal, but I was up in Dakota Territory last year. Hank Shin's got quite a reputation up there. Oh? For what? For gunmen, Marshal. Why, there ain't nobody up there to go against him. Ain't that so, Shin? Three men tried it once. By golly, that's right. That was in the town of Blackhawk, wasn't it, Shin? That's where it happened. Three men tried to take him in a saloon there, Marshal, and he killed every one of them. It was all gunmen, too. People are still talking about it. Hank Shin's got about the biggest reputation of anybody up there. I guess the word don't get to Dodge very fast. Well, maybe I ought to apologize to you, Shin. Oh, it's all right, Marshal. You didn't know. Forget it. Okay, I'll forget it. But I want you to remember something. What? You're going to impress a lot of citizens around here. But I don't care how big a man you are in Blackhawk or any place else. You start trouble on Dodge and I'll cut your string. You're talking mighty loose, Marshal. You know, somehow I got a feeling you can't thrive on talk. 
I don't think I like that. Don't you? Come on, Chester. Yes, sir. I'd have fought him anyway, Mr. Dillon. I, I don't care who he is. I didn't step in to help you out, Chester. I did it to stop a gunfight. Somebody's going to fight him if he keeps going on like that. Maybe. Dad, I hope there's no trouble while I'm gone. Yeah. Say, I plumb forgot. You're taking Santa Fe up to Abilene tonight, ain't you? Yeah, I'll be back in about a week. But if this Hank Shen starts on a killing spree, you telegraph me. Yes, sir, I sure will, Mr. Dillon. My business in Abilene didn't take as long as I thought it would. And I was back in Dodge four or five days later. And I found that the growth of Hank Shin's reputation hadn't taken long either. I heard about it at the depot, at the post office, and then at Delmonico's, where I stopped in for a cup of coffee. Kitty was there, finishing her dinner at a corner table. And she beckoned me when I walked in. Hello, Matt. Hello, Kitty. How are you? How's Abilene? Well, it's still growing. Uh, oh, uh, Bill Hickok sent his regards. That's nicer. Is he as handsome as ever? Yeah, he is. <laughs> you know, I, uh, I, I'm kind of worried about him, Kitty. Oh, why, Matt? That's his eyes. I, I don't think they're as good as they used to be. Mm. Well, that's bad. Yeah. Well, how are things around here? Well, the only thing that's growing here seems to be Hank Shin. Yeah, they tell me he's having a real fine time. Oh, he's acting mighty proud, Matt. But I've seen his kind before. Oh? Oh, how do you mean? Well, somebody who hasn't heard what a devil he is with a gun just might shoot a hole in him one of these days. <laughs> You know, I got a feeling that you'd like to do it yourself. <laughs> Matt, if women ever took to carrying guns, you men would have to start behaving yourselves. All of you. <laughs> Uh-oh. What? Welcome back to Dodge, Marshal. Hello, Shen. We missed you. Didn't we, Kitty? Something you wanted... I declare you're as hard to get along with as she is. She won't even talk to me. Just because a person lives around hogs, he doesn't have to wallow with them. I wouldn't take that from a man. Well, from what I hear, no man's dared to talk to you like that, sir. You bet they haven't. Yeah, you got the town pretty well buffaloed, haven't you? A little respect is all I ask for, Marshal. Uh-huh. The uh, kind you got up in Blackhawk? The kind I'm getting here. From most people. But not from me. Though. I got no quarrel with you, Marshal. You know, you can't seem to make up your mind. What's your trouble, Shen? I got no trouble. Why do you say that? I don't know. Just a feeling, I guess. But, uh, don't let it spook you. Nothing spooks me. Oh, you're lucky. So far. I don't like this talk. Nobody's making you listen to it. Well, 
You bet they ain't. You know what I think, Matt? No, what, Kitty? I think Hank Shin's off-center. Way off. Well, we'll find out how far, Kitty. Any day now. you get back, Matt? Oh, about an hour ago. I was just coming up to see you. You were, yeah? Yeah. Hey, you remember Jim Branch? Jim Branch? Oh, oh, Jim Branch. Yes, I ought to. I cut a frozen toe off of him last winter. Yeah, well, I ran into him up in Abilene. He uh, wanted me to give you this. He did? Well, what is it? Twenty dollars. Oh, twenty dollars. Well, that was worth waiting for. Uh, he didn't know exactly how much it was that he did owe you. I'd nick him for more if he was here, but this'll do all right. What's he doing in Abilene? He give up buffalo hunting? Ah, he told me he'd never go out on the prairie again. He's running the old golf house right now. The old golf house? You mean, did he buy that? No, he bought into it. Oh, yes, I always knew that man had money hidden away somewhere. Well, he's quite a dude now, Doc. Beaver hat, fancy shirt. Oh. <laughs> I hardly recognize What's that? It came from the Alifraganza. I thought things had been too quiet around here lately. It's about time we had a killing. There's Chester. Oh, good. At least it wasn't him that got shot. Mr. Dillon? What happened, Chester? It was Hank Chen, Mr. Dillon. He just killed a man in there. What, a fight? Yes, sir. Oh, this fellow was awful drunk. Some stranger. I don't know who he was. Well, him and Chen got to arguing, and he went for his gun, and Chen shot him. Killed him dead. Well, I'll look at him anyways. You seem half scared, Mr. Dillon. Oh, Shen? Yes, sir. He kept trying to say who he was, but the fellow was too drunk to pay any attention. And then afterwards, Shen looked kindly surprised, like he didn't quite know what had happened. Oh, is that so? There he is at the bar there. Oh, well, where's the dead man? Well, he was right here with you. Oh, somebody drug him off the corner there. Oh, yes, I see him. I see him. Stand up. Here's the marshal, Shin. Now, what's he want? Now, it was a fair fight. Now, you tell him, Davy. Sure, sure, I will. Marshal, I seen the whole thing. Chester already told me about it, Dave. That fella drawed first. I... I tried to tell him who I was, but he wouldn't listen. I did, too. I told him this here is Hank Shin from Blackhawk. I told him that before he ever got started. He was drunk. He was too drunk to know what he was doing. Too drunk to fight? He shouldn't have tried to fight me. He should have known better than that. Now maybe people will leave me alone. Why? Because you outdrew a drunk man? What are you saying, Marshal? You seem kind of upset, Shen. Did it get you this way when you killed those three men up in Black Hook? I'm all right. I'm all right. Now you leave me alone. I want everybody to leave me alone. Yeah, sure. That next time it may be a little different. What do you mean? Somebody might come along who hasn't been told what a killer you are. A real gunman, Shen, not some drunk who probably couldn't shoot straight if he was sober. You're... You're the worst man I ever met, Marshal. Anyway, I told you to leave me alone. Okay, Shen, I'll leave you alone. Here. 
Have a drink on me. You need it. Come on, Chester. My, he, he's so mad he can't talk to me, Dylan. He's already talked too much. What's wrong with him, anyway? Uh, maybe he's not getting all the respect he needs. No. Wait a minute. What? That man tying up his horse over there. I don't know him. He knows you, though. He's coming over here. Yeah. Who is he? He's a gunman from New Mexico, Chester. His name's Al James. By golly, I was right. Matt Dillon. Yeah, that's right. Hello, James. It's Marshal Dillon now, ain't it? Uh-huh. Oh, this is Chester Proudfoot, Al James. How you do, Chester? Oh, what are you doing in Dodge? Oh, nothing, Marshal. Looking around. Yeah. You uh, never came here before. No. I never did. man like you has usually got something in his mind, hasn't he? <laughs> I'm here on pleasure, Marshal. little gambling and the like. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right, James, but uh, you stay out of trouble. Huh? Dodge isn't as wide open as some of the towns you've been in. man gets a reputation. It sure stays with him, don't it? You wouldn't be able to sell your gun if it didn't. <laughs> now, ain't that the truth? Uh, see you around later. I'll buy you a drink, maybe. You too, Chester. Uh, sure. What do you suppose he is doing here, Mr. Dillon? Nothing, Chester. I believe him. He's a paid gunman, but I've never known him to lie. Yeah. And there ain't nothing so much to worry about, huh? Chester, around a man like Al James, there's always something to worry about. Good supper? Oh, just terrible. Oh, where'd you eat? Over at the Durango Cafe. Ah, uh, couldn't have been uh, chili beans. Yes, sir. Oh, I'll never go there again. Not after tonight. <laughs> Why not? Well, they're sour, Mr. Dillon. Like they'd been cooked a month ago. My, I had an awful time getting them down. Well, you didn't have to eat them, you know, Chester. Well, after putting out 15 cents, of course I had to eat them. Oh. If I wouldn't have been so hungry, I wouldn't have had them. I ain't going to... Marshal? Evening, Shen. Marshal, I've been thinking. What? I've been thinking about this afternoon. Yeah, you was right. 
I needed a drink. So? I... I don't like killing people, Marshal. And that's the truth. I, I don't like it. Why are you telling me about it? I tried to tell Davy and some of them fellas, but they wouldn't believe me. I'm tired of it, Marshal. I just don't want no part of it. Oh? Uh -huh. I thought maybe you could explain it to them, to everybody. And they'd listen to you. You tell them I'm through, Marshal. Tell them I ain't a gunman no more. Just a plain, ordinary man. And if you're so plain and ordinary, why don't you tell me what this is all about? I did tell you. And if you don't believe me, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take off my gun. And I'm going to leave it right here. Now there. Now you believe me? Well, do you? I don't know what to think of you, Shin. But I proved it. Now, there's my gun. And you got to tell him, Marshal. I got me a bottle in my coat pocket. I, I'm going to my room, and I'm going to forget all about this. You tell him now, Marshal. And you tell him tonight. He is crazy, Mr. Dillon. Yeah, there's something sure wrong with him. I don't believe any of that about him being tired of killing people. No. It's more like he's scared of something, ain't it? Chester. Yes, sir. I think I know what it might be. What? Al James. What's he got to do with it? I don't know. But let's go find him. Well, what for? To tell him Hank Shen isn't armed. Well, he could see that. He was wearing a coat, That's right out there in the street. Yeah, come on. There's some men down there, Mr. Dillon. Yeah. If it was a fight, it sure didn't last long. One bullet can end a fight, Chester. Well, there's somebody laying there. Looks like Hank Shin. Yeah. Nobody ain't paying any attention to him. They're all crowded around our James. By golly, that is James. I'm going to go take a look at Shin, Chester. You better go back and get Doc, huh? Yes, Mr. Dillon. I'll hurry. Chen. Chen. He, he shot me, Marshal. He shot me. Al James. He ran into me here, but I was so scared I couldn't say nothing. I, I tried to open my coat to show him I wasn't armed, and he shot me. Doc will be here in a minute, Jim. Marshal? Yeah. Marshal, I... I never killed nobody before today. No, I didn't think so. Them fellas up in Blackhawk, they had a fight. I was the only other man there. And I hid out till it was over. They killed themselves. And you took credit for it. Mm -hmm. it. It made people respect me. All kinds of people. 
You understand? Yeah, I understand. How's he doing, Marshal? I hit him twice. Marshal? Marshal? Sure died slow. Pretty slow, James. He went for his gun, Marshal. The men over there can tell you they saw it. You heard about his reputation and you had to kill him, didn't you? Self-defense, Marshal. There's nothing to talk about. Hank Shen was a liar, James. His reputation was a fake. What? I don't believe you. It's true. Now, besides, he wasn't even armed. Take a look. He ain't wearing a gun. But he, he went for it. I saw him. Everybody did. He had killed an unarmed man, James. I don't like that. You'll have to stand trial for it. That ain't what's bothering me. No? It was a mistake. I'll get off. But everybody's gonna be laughing at me. Especially if you tell him about him being a liar. He shot a drunk this afternoon, and that nearly scared him to death. You have to tell him that, Marshal? I don't like gunmen, James. What do you mean? After this, your reputation isn't going to be worth much. It won't be worth nothing. So it looks like Hank Shen got himself a gunman after all, doesn't it? All right, come on, let's go to jail. Now our star, William Conrad. Thank you, George. Mild and plenty quick on the draw. That's L&M for you. And the pure white miracle tip on the business end of every L&M filters out everything but the taste of the world's finest tobaccos. All you have to do is pick up a carton of L&M's and you'll see what I mean. L&M stands out from all the rest. Gunsmoke, produced and directed by Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Our story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Sound patterns by Tom Hanley and Bill James. Featured in the cast were Vic Perrin, Paul Dubov, and Barney Phillips. Harley Bear is Chester, Howard McNear is Doc, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty.
Now, if I'd told you that episode was titled Liar from Blackhawk, it would have tipped you off, wouldn't it have? Anyway, it came from Gunsmoke in the spring of 1955 and from the big broadcast over WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arald Bailey is our co-producer, and Mike Kidd and Barnaby Bristol are the audio engineers. You can reach us by email at bigbroadcast at wamu.org. Our website is thebigbroadcast.org, and we invite you to visit our Facebook page, The Big Broadcast. We're back at the very beginning of the Dragnet series, and tonight we'll hear how quickly the show began to hit its stride by only the third episode. The announcers and the star, Jack Webb, get into the even-tempered, stylized delivery that, along with Walter Schumann's famous music, gave the series its signature sound. From June 17, 1949, before they were titling their episodes, it's the one that old-time radio collectors call Werewolf. It comes from NBC and Dragnet. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. NBC brings you Dragnet. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned to robbery detail. There's a potential killer on the loose in your city. Eighteen women have been beaten and robbed by this man. The newspapers call him the Weirwolf. Your job is to get him. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime investigated and solved by the men who unrelentingly stand watch on the security of your home, your family, and your life. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case, from beginning to end, from crime to punishment. Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Thursday morning, February 2nd. It was raining in Los Angeles. We were working the early morning watch out of robbery detail. Detectives in Los Angeles work in pairs. My partner's Ben Romero. He's a sergeant and so am I. My name's Friday. The boss is Ed Backstrand, chief of detectives. I was on the way back from the teletype room and it was 3 a.m. when I got to room 27A. Robbery detail. Hi, Ben. What's up? Keep your coat on, Joe. Just had a hot shot call. Coming, Skipper? Right behind you. Let's go, Friday. Well, what was it, Ed? Another woman robbed, almost beaten to death. Uh, well, how many does that make? About 18 in six weeks. Is that right, Skipper? Yeah, 18 too many. Come on down these stairs to the garage. Yeah. What about that suspect we had, Ed? You mean Martin? Yeah. Had to release him this morning. But I got a good tail on him, Henderson. Yeah. We got any reports yet? Nothing definite to hold him for. Here's the garage. Let's hustle it. Right. Then if this isn't Martin's job, Skipper, and he's not the right man... Then we start all over again, and we work night and day till we find the right man. Here's the car. Let's go. Ben, you drive. Yeah, all right. How do the victims describe this guy, Ed? Pretty sketchy. Supposed to be tall, dark, long black hair. 
Last woman said he had a face like an animal, something like a dog or a wolf. A wolf? Yeah. She said something like a werewolf. Something like a werewolf. Well, he almost had to be that, judging from the way he operated. He was either an animal or a raving maniac. One thing we were sure of, he was smart and he was dangerous. For almost two months, he'd prowled the streets in a stolen car in the early morning, usually between 3 and 5 a.m. And the victims were always lone women, most of them waitresses, coming to work or going home. He dragged them into the car, robbed them, beat them until they were unconscious, and then throw the body out into the street. That's just what we found when we pulled up to the curb near the corner of 8th and Grand. One cruiser car was already there, and so was the ambulance. About a dozen people were standing around looking at the crumpled figure of a woman sprawled out on the sidewalk. Two officers were talking to the only witness, a thin, sallow-faced newsboy. His story didn't give us much to go on. Like I was telling these cops, sir, or these officers, sir, I was walking up 8th Street on my way home as usual when I see this blue Chevy sedan pull up down a the block there a little way and dump out the dame's body. Actually, I, I don't know what to think. Did you get a look at the license plate? Well, well, no, I didn't. Tell you the truth, I could hardly keep from... Well, I was just plain scared. Mm. Well, what did you do after you saw him throw the body out, son? Well, I just stood there for a minute, and well, the fellow in the car drove right on past me. Did you get a look at him? Yeah, I sure did. How close were you when he drove past? Well, no, it couldn't have been more than, well, eight or ten feet away. Uh. I was right over there by the street light near the curb. Would you know this man if you saw him again? I don't know about his height or his build or his weight, but, mister, his face I'll never forget. Why do you say that? It was just like the paper says about him. Right, right here on the front page. Here, read it. See? Woman says attacker looked like werewolf. That's all the newsboy could tell us. The suspect drove a blue sedan. He had a face like a werewolf. We covered the neighborhood for clues, and we questioned a dozen people, but we got nowhere. We took the witness's name and address, and, and we drove down a couple of blocks to an all-night gas station. 14 hour, I'm going in here and call the office and see if Henderson's called in on Martin. We might still have a suspect. Right, Skipper. Looks as mad as a wet hornet, doesn't it, Joe? Yeah. Did you get a good look at that woman's face when they moved her in the ambulance? Yeah. Sure does like to mess him up. Oh, I don't know how we're going to get him, Ben, but we better do it fast. Next time, it'll probably be murder. Oh, here comes the skipper, Joe. Uh-oh. Doesn't look good. What is it, Ed? <clears throat> Just talked to Henderson. He tailed Martin to a bar in Long Beach. He hasn't been out of his sight for two minutes since yesterday. Martin's clear. And we're right back where we started. Yeah, with one more half-dead woman in the hospital. Well, how about that stolen car, Skip? Wait a minute, wait a minute. Get that radio up. Code 3, ambulance dispatched. Attention, all units. On Grand Avenue between Venice and Washington, a woman, victim of robbery and attack. Code 3, ambulance to task. Code 3, red light and siren. Come on, Friday, let's roll. Couldn't be sure, but it sounded like another one. Six minutes later, we were there. Same story. Werewolf. The next day, the chief ordered the number of cruiser cars doubled in the central district. This was for the early morning watch with plainclothesmen to back them up. 
Then the newspapers played it vague, and in two days, the story was on the front page of every paper in town. Maybe that should have made the werewolf lay low, but it didn't. Because at four o'clock that morning, while Ben and I were patrolling with the other cars, he got his 20th victim. Attention, all units. Whittier between Soto and Matthews. A woman, victim of 211, an attack. Code 3. Ambulance dispatched. Here's a report on that blue sedan he used the other night, Joe. Found it out on Anaheim Telegraph Road. Any luck with it? Not one fingerprint we can use. Anything else? Nothing. Well, how about the auto theft detail? Same old story, Joe. He steals a car, uses it once, and then drops it. Never leaves a thing behind. Well, that's great. We're sure moving fast. How about that big guy you picked out of the lineup this morning? Oh, I checked his alibi. It's perfect. Hmm. Now we haven't got even half a clue. Yeah. Well, come on. Let's check with Ed. He's instructing the police women on the plan for tonight. All right. Now you've heard the reports. You understand how the suspect operates and what you're to do. Yes, so. Remember, all of you forget you were ever policewomen. Change the way you walk, the way you carry yourselves. That's the part you're playing, all right? Okay. And be careful and don't take any chances. All right, Freddy. Okay, Ed. Now, just to make sure you look the part, we're spotting each one of you at different restaurants and coffee shops throughout the Central District. And from 7 o'clock tonight until daylight tomorrow, each one of you is going to be a waitress. You got that? Yeah. Okay, Ben, you want to give them their assignments? Okay, Joe. Well, here's the way it lines up. Marge Kissel at the Top Hat Cafe. That's on 9th Street between Alvarado and Westlake. Okay. And Katie Wells, Joe's Coffee House, Brooklyn Soto. Right. Pat Fielding at the all-night steakhouse on Figueroa Street between Florence and... No, the trick of using decoys to lure criminals into a trap wasn't exactly new, but, well, it was just one of the old tricks that we figured might land the werewolf behind bars. At 7 that night, Ben and I made the rounds and found each of the policewomen on her job as a waitress. Well, the overall plan was simple. The girls were to leave the different restaurants between 3 and 5 a.m. that morning and pretend they were walking home. We mapped different courses for each one of them to throw out as much bait as possible and yet not to make it look suspicious. Each policewoman, from the time she left the restaurant and stepped out into the deserted streets, would be pretty much on her own. We had officers planted all along the way at designated intervals, but a big element of chance and danger was still there. All we could do was cross our fingers and hope. How much more time, Joe? Let me see. She's doing two minutes. Yeah. Waiting gets on your nerves. And it won't be long. This corner doorway's pretty good lookout, boy. Yeah. Wait a minute. Listen. Who is it, Joe? Can you see? Get back. What is it? Wait a minute. It's Marge Kissel. There's a man following her, a big guy. If it's the werewolf, where's his car? I don't know. Maybe he changed his plans. Get back. Here they come. You get a look at him, Joe? Oh, pretty good. He's not too suspicious. Might be coincidence. Well, I got a pretty good lead. Come on, let's go. Stay back in the shadows. Hey, Joe. Hmm? So where'd the guy go to? I lost him. The little coffee shop up in the next corner. See? Take a look. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's opening the door. He's turning on the lights. Yeah. Looks like a false alarm, Joe. Well, let's check him anyway. Well, I didn't think we'd be that lucky on the first try, and we weren't. We asked the man a few questions, and it didn't take him long to show us he wasn't our man. He owned the coffee shop. So, Ben and I went back and took up our posts again and waited for the next decoy. We covered that ten-block course six times that morning, back and forth, following the bait, but it was almost as if the guy could sense a trap. Not once did we get a nibble. 
By the time our last decoy finished the route, it was almost daylight. Joe, I never was so glad to see that sun come up in my whole life. My feet feel like they're puffing right up out of my shoes. Yeah, me too. Come on, let's get over to the car and check on the other squad out in Boyle Heights. Huh? Mm-hmm. Oh. Hit the radio, will you, Ben? Yeah. Joe, there must be some easier job on the force than this. Yeah, you and me both. Now, let's see what happened to the others, huh? 80K to Unit 104K, come in. 104K to Unit 80K, go ahead. 104K, this is Friday. You do any good out there? This is Miller. I'll call Curtis. Stand by. 80K to 104K, Roger. What do you think, Joe? Maybe a bite? I don't know. Oh, this guy seems to work like a mind reader. Well, he can't win all of them. 104K to Unit 80K. This is Curtis, go ahead. This is Friday, Al. How'd you do out there? Any luck? Just checked in the last gal, Joe. Andy Welch, not a sign. Okay, Al. Have the men check in. 80K clear. KGPL. Okay, let's go, Ben. When we finally got back to the office that morning, both Ben and I were ready for some sleep, but it didn't look like we were going to get it. We just about finished going through the overnight reports for some kind of a lead when the phone rang. Robbery Friday. Hi, Joe. This is Wilkerson, Auto Theft. Hi, Wilkie. You got something for us? Not much, Joe, but it might work into something. Just got a report in on a pair of stolen license plates. Oh? Yeah. I'm not much of a hawkshaw, but I figure there's just a chance it might be your werewolf boy. How come? I don't know. Maybe just a hunch. After 13 years in this business, you get to know thieves pretty well. Sometimes you got to even think like them. Okay, Wilkie, thanks. We'll check by in a couple of minutes. Right, Joe. What do you have to say? pair of license plates stolen last night. Wilkie's got a hunch it could have been our man. Well, it might be an angle, Joe. If that werewolf guy'd hang on to one car long enough, we'd have a chance at him. Well, he's too smart for that. I don't know, Joe. Sooner or later, he's going to make a mistake. Yeah. Come on, let's check with Wilkie. Well, we checked with Wilkerson. We got the best piece of news we'd had in days. On the average, 95% of stolen cars are recovered or located within 24 hours. In the remaining 5%, Wilkerson, by a simple process of elimination, narrowed down the number of cars the suspect might be driving. Wilkie figured six cars. There they are. Now, I'll bet you if you picked up your man tonight, he'd be in one of these cars. Let me see, huh? Two-door black sedan, yellow convertible, another sedan, green, blue coupe, black coupe, and a gray convertible. Well, that's good work, Wilkie. At least we got something to look for now. Yeah, you're right, Joe. Uh, Wilkie, you got the numbers of those stolen plates you're talking about? Yeah, right here, Ben. They're already on the hot sheet. Good. Keep us posted, huh? As usual, Ben. See you later, Wilkie. That's a good break, Ben. Something to keep us busy tonight. Tonight? What do you mean? We're setting another trap. Same thing as last night. Same police women, same everything. Well, only this time, let's hope he steps into it. You know, Joe, this werewolf character is getting me mad. That night, we followed in our own footsteps. We planted the policewomen decoys in three separate districts, and a few minutes before 3 a.m., our squad of men took up their positions. The same policewomen went to their waitress jobs in the same restaurants, and Ben and I and the rest of the men stood in darkened doorways or empty filling stations or whatever cover we could find. And we waited and waited. What time is it, Joe? Let me look. Half past four. Oh, thank you. Any sign, Joe? No, nothing yet. Come on, stay in the shadows. That's the way it went all through the early morning. 
the same plan over and over again until daylight. Ben and I had check in at the station, go over the late stolen car reports with Wilkie, catch a few hours sleep at home, and then come back and do it all over again. The next night, and the next morning, and the night after that, and the morning after that. Five days later, Ben and I were ready to call it quits. I'll admit it, Joe, I can't figure it. Guy's either psychic or else he can smell a cop a mile away. Yeah, well, at least we got that stolen car angle left. Did you check with Wilkie yet this morning? I'll give him a call now. All right. Auto theft, Wilkerson. This is Ben, Wilkie. Got anything for us this morning? Yeah, I was just going to call you. You fellas ought to let me solve your cases for you. Why? What'd you get? The boys picked up three of those six stolen cars since late yesterday. Great. Now, what does that leave us with? I hear the three still missing. Yeah. Four X-ray 763. Yeah. Five six young 342. Uh-huh. Six one Robert 385. Yeah. Got those? Yeah, thank you, Wilkie. Check you later. Good news? Remember those six missing cars? Yeah. Wilkie says the boys found three of them since late yesterday. Here's what's still out. The blue coupe, the yellow convertible, and the gray convertible. Yeah. Well, this feels like the right track for a change, Ben. Righty. Romero, got a minute? Sure thing, Skipper. Come on, Joe. What do you got, Ed? A woman up in Hollywood just called in with this. She said she walked down to the corner from her house last night to mail the letter. On the way back, a guy pulled up in the car and tried to drag her inside. Any description? Big, heavy, set, dark, same thing. Well, how'd you get away from him, Skipper? She said she started running as soon as he made a motion toward her. When he saw her run up the steps of her house, he jumped back in the car and took off. Well, how come she didn't call in before this? She hasn't got a phone. She's afraid to leave the house again until this morning. Sounds good, Chief. You got her address there? Yeah, yeah. Mrs. Tom Burdick, 1237 Wilcox, apartment 10. Come on, Ben. This might be what we're looking for. Sergeant Friday, ma'am. Police. Oh, just a moment. I'm Sergeant Romero, Miss Birdie. This is my partner, Sergeant Friday. We come out to check on your call about that little trouble last night. Oh, well, I don't know if I'm going to be much help to you. I was so frightened about all I could do was just run. Well, could you add anything to the man's description, Miss Burdick? I mean, other than what you told the chief on the phone? Well, no. Honestly, I don't think I can. All I saw was this tall, dark man jumping out of his car and starting for me. He had a heavy build and seemed to me, well, a large head with lots of long black hair. Uh-huh. Uh, Miss Burdick, uh, would you recognize this man if you ever saw him again? Well, I think I might. He was such an unusually big man, almost frightened me to death. Well, just one more question, Miss Burdick. Could you describe the car this man was driving when he approached you? His car? Mm-hmm. Why, yes, it was a gray convertible. Miss Burdick, are you sure of that? Yes, I'm sure of it. A gray convertible. Thank you, Miss Burdick. That's all we wanted to know. Sometimes when you're on a case, you can chase yourself around in circles for weeks trying to fit together just two little pieces of a yard-long jigsaw puzzle. And a lot of the time, you find the answer where you least expect it. But once you get that feeling you're after the right man in the right way, there's nothing that can shake you. When Ben and I got back to headquarters, we went straight to the chief's office with the story, and we had him stake out the gray convertible. In other words, if any detective or officer spotted the car, he reported it back to us, but he stayed away from it. 
We figured that there probably weren't more than two of the victims who could take the witness stand and identify the man who robbed and beat them. Not with a smart defense lawyer, anyway. So there was only one way to catch this suspect. Red-handed. Here they are, Joe. Both sets of license numbers for that gray convertible. Here are the original, and here are the numbers on the stolen plate. Good. Everybody got a hot sheet? From the chief all the way down to the janitor. Fine. Now let's get together with Ed, huh? Hot shot, Joe. Grab it. I got it. On the corner of California and Oakwood, a woman badly beaten. On the corner of California and Oakwood, a woman badly... Come on, Ben. Another one. But, Joe, it's broad daylight. Yeah. Doesn't figure, does it? Come on. Vacant lot over, Joe. Two plain clothesmen and uniformed officers were keeping the crowd back. An ambulance was drawn up by the curb, but it was empty. When we got down to the rear of the lot, we found out why. They were waiting for the coroner. The woman was young, not much more than 30. Her body was half sprawled across the muddy ground, and her face was turned upward. It had been badly beaten. They figured it happened last night, Sergeant. Have the fingerprint men been notified? Yeah. How about the crime lab? Just called them. That's good. Now, let's keep everybody out of the area till they get here. All right, Sergeant. Uh, who found the body? One of the kids in the neighborhood. Owen was dead when he found her. Did she live around here? Oh, about a half mile away. I hear she's got three kids. Or she had three kids. Uh-huh. You've seen enough, Ben? Yeah. Let's get on back to headquarters. All the way back to headquarters, Ben and I planned our next move. And by the time we got to Ed Backstrand's office, we knew exactly what had to be done. When we told him about the werewolf murder, he didn't say a thing for a minute. He just stared across the room at the calendar on the wall. Then he brought his hand down hard against the desk. Friday, Romero, I'm only going to say this once, so get it straight. That guy's pulled his last job in this city. He's through robbing and beating women, and he's through with murder. I've given you time to track him down, and now I want him in. No stalls and no excuses. I want him. I don't care how many men you use, and I don't care how you get him, but get him. That's all. Ben and I worked all that afternoon, right through dinner, up until 8 o'clock. By that time, the overall plan was down on paper and already in action. It was one of the biggest things we'd ever tackled, and, well, we didn't know if it was going to work. We only knew it had to work. We had a squad of 65 cars to stretch out over 40 square miles of the city in one big dragnet. The blockade itself would be stationary most of the time, and working inside it would be two cars, 14 policewomen as decoys, with two plainclothesmen assigned to watch each policewoman. If and when the werewolf was sighted in the gray convertible, we'd automatically take over the police radio for the whole city, and Backstrand would direct the chase from headquarters. A little after eight, we had coffee and hamburgers, and we went to Ben's for a few hours. Ben tucked his kid in bed as usual, and then he laid down for a nap. I talked to his wife until I dozed off in the chair. At 11.30, she woke us up. I combed my hair and put on my coat. Cops' wives are like everybody else's. They worry. When we met Ed at headquarters, we did some last-minute checking on details with Backstrand for about a half an hour, and then we were all ready to go. By five minutes past two, half the dragnet crew pulled out of the police garage and scattered over the city to their places. By 2.35, the other half pulled out, and a few minutes later, Ben and I followed. 
three minutes to three that morning, Backstrand took over communications and checked every car in the operation. It was a good start. Every man in his right place by the right time. The trap was set. All we needed now was to find our suspect, the werewolf, inside. Control 4 to Unit 80K. Control 4 to Unit 80K. 80K to Control 4. Go ahead. This is Backstrand standing by. 80K. Roger. Clear. KGPL. Okay, Ben. Now let's go find him. I got a hunch, Joe. Let's try the Wilshire district first. Sounds all right to me. Let's go. For the first hour and a half, we raked the Wilshire district back and forth. Not a sign. Then about 38 minutes past four, we headed back for the downtown area and parked in an alley where we could double-check on one of our policewomen decoys. Here comes one of the gals now, Joe. Pat Field. Bet her feet are almost as tarred as mine. Uh, you see anything else, Ben? Nothing. Quiet as a church. No. No, no, wait a minute. Hmm? Car just turned the corner. Heading up in the same direction she is. Joe. Hmm? Joe, it's slowing down. Wait a minute. It's pulling up beside her. It's a gray convertible. It's him, Joe. Come on. <laughs> We've spotted the suspect. He's driving a gray Ford convertible, license 61 Robert 385. Suspect's headed east on Olympic from Alameda, driving without lights. Suspect is armed. He had a fast car and he knew how to drive it. We almost lost him twice. Two minutes after we sighted him, Backstrand took over full radio control. Control 4 to Unit 80K, your location? 80K to Control 4. We're traveling at a high rate of speed, headed east on Olympic, crossing Soto Street. Control 4 to all units, stand by. Units 11A, 12, and 13R close in on the intersections at Olympic and Lorena. Units 41, 42, 45, and 104K move on on the next four crossings east of that. To the north and south, units 105K14A17R43T. Lock all main arteries. In the next half hour, the 65 cars in the dragnet had pulled in like a noose around a five-mile area. Ben and I hoped it was just a matter of time. Unit 80K to Control 4. Control 4 to 80K, go ahead. He's headed north on Fresno Street, crossing Whittier Boulevard. Attention all units. 80K now pursuing suspect north on Fresno from Whittier Boulevard. Units 15, 105K, 11R, and 18A block off the intersection on Fresno and 4. Hey, Ben, up there ahead. What's he trying to do now? Look, he's turning around. Yeah. Yeah, and he's coming right for us. Watch it, Joe. Look out! Pretty close. 80K to control 4. Control 4 80K, go ahead. Exchanging shots with suspect. Watch it, Ben. Here he comes again. Use that gun, doesn't he? Sure does. Hey, Joe, look. Look, he's turning east. He's running for Hollenbeck Park. Yeah, 80K to Control 4. Control 4, go ahead. Suspect just drove up over curb and into Hollenbeck Park. Get him. Yeah. Never say die, huh, Joe? Joe, can you get a shot at him? 
Then step out on the open and get your hands in the air. All right, all right, I give up. Well, don't shoot. You're a brave kill. Yeah, come on. All right, you get your hands in the air. Come on, higher. Joe, look out, he's got a knife. I got him. <laughs> Joe, those women were right. He does look like a werewolf. Yeah. You got your handcuffs? Yeah. Okay. Got a cigarette? Uh, I've been out for an hour. Middle place across the street. Maybe we can get somewhere. Uh... Okay. There's the crew from the 41R. Hey, fellas, take him into robbery, will you? Okay, Friday. I think there's a vending machine in there. Uh-huh. Say, uh, you got some change for the cigarette machine, mister? I think so. Say, uh, who's that guy all them cops were after over in the park a little while ago? I picked up the werewolf. Been reading the papers? Yeah. You fellas cops? Yeah. <laughs> sure made it easy for you, didn't he? All you cops had to do was surround the little fella in the park. Nothing to it, huh? Yeah, that's right, mister. Nothing to it. The story you have just heard was true. Only the names were changed to protect the innocent. Walter Barton, known as the werewolf, was tried and convicted and is now serving a full life sentence at the state penitentiary. <laughs> This has been Dragnet, the third in a new series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice for Dragnet comes from the office of C.B. Horrell, Chief of Police, Los Angeles Police Department. Tonight's program is dedicated to Sergeant Mario Victor Dairo of the Los Angeles Police Department, who on the morning of January 1st, 1943, gave his life so that yours might be more secure. Dragnet came to you from Los Angeles. Dragnet, growing up quickly in only its third episode from the last week of spring in 1949. It's the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arold Bailey is our co-producer. Barnaby Bristol and Mike Kidd are our audio engineers. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. Celebrating 60 years. In HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. We always note with wonder and admiration that at the height of his movie stardom and the exact moment when television was overtaking radio in American households, the actor James Stewart took on a Western radio series. Listening to The Sixth Shooter, I can't help but think that part of the reason was that Mr. Stewart must have enjoyed doing radio and knew that he was so darn good at it. See if you hear what I hear in this December 6, 1953 episode of the NBC series... The Sixth Shooter. James Stewart as The Sixth Shooter.
The man in the saddle is angular and long-legged. His skin is sun-dyed brown. The gun in his holster is gray steel and rainbow mother of pearl. Its handle unmarked. People call them Bolt, the six-shooter. The NBC Radio Network presents James Stewart as the six-shooter, a transcribed series of radio dramas based on the life of Britt Ponson, the Texas plainsman who wandered through the western territories, leaving behind a trail of still-remembered legends. About the last place I expected to be that Tuesday was the town of Powder Creek. The Double G Ranch where I'd been working was clear on the other side of the territory, neither oh, about 200 miles away. But when Sam Griffith, he's the owner of the Double G, when Sam got a chance to buy off Forrest Trench Herd, he sent me over to close the deal. So the next thing I knew, I was walking down the main street on my way to the bank where I was supposed to meet Trent. Gee, it sure was a nice day. Kind of Indian summer-like. A lot warmer than it had a right to be in October. The sun had fooled the maple trees into thinking it was spring. A couple of them beside the Civil War cannon in the square were even starting to bud. The two fellows sitting underneath it playing checkers in their shirt sleeves, eh? Well, it looked like the sun had fooled them, too. <laughs> Howdy. Just a minute, mister. Just a minute till I make this move. There. That ought to hold you, Jonah. Mm. Now, uh, what was it you wanted, mister? Oh, I didn't want anything. I just said howdy, that's all. Oh, howdy. Well, speak to the man, Jonah. He spoke to us. It's my move now. I'll do my talking afterward. Yeah. Howdy. Oh, it's a nice day. Yeah. Well, so long. Uh, hold up there a minute, son. Hmm? Say, see that gun of his, John? Yep. You, uh, you ain't Britt Ponsett, the six-shooter. My name's Ponsett, yeah. You hear that, Jonah? He's Britt Ponsett. Yep. And we was kind of wondering when you was going to show up, Mr. Ponsett. Been expecting him for the last month or so. What's that? Yeah, when you're going to jump, you got to take it. That's the rule. All right, all right, yep. Jonah. All right, I know the rule. Well, we'll take it then, take it. All right. Yeah. <laughs> there. You satisfied? Yeah. You, you said something about expecting oh, why, me. Why, sure. To... Ever since we heard the news, congratulations. Why? He said congratulations. Now let's get on with the game. All right. Uh, sure move, ain't it? Yeah, how in thunder should I know? All this chattering going on. Well, I don't like to keep interrupting, but I wonder if you'd mind explaining just what you meant by... by... Jonah's trying to think. Yeah, I know, but what I... I don't I... want him to claim I beat him because we kept him from concentrating. No, 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 no. Of course not. No, no. I... I... <laughs> Well, I knew that the Trent cattle would turn out to be good stock. The Double G was lucky to be buying them. But since they weren't going to belong to me, I couldn't see why congratulations were in order. Unless folks in Powder Creek had heard wrong, unless they thought I was outfitting a ranch of my own. And I started to explain things to the fellows playing checkers, but they shushed me again, good, good and loud this time. So I gave up and went on town toward the bank I was just passing by the newspaper office when I bumped into Quint Todd. He was editor of the Powder Creek Press, his weekly newspaper. Matter of fact, he was more than just an editor. Quint Todd retired in the last six or seven years, and he was putting out the paper practically single-handed. 
Good afternoon, Quant. Huh? Yeah. Oh, it's you, Ponset. So you finally got here, huh? Well, I'm here, if that's what you mean. I didn't realize folks were so anxious about me. Some of us are anxious, maybe. Some of us ain't. Ah. Uh-huh. What, are you, you upset about something, Quint? Why should I be upset? Well, I don't know. I don't know. The things are all right, aren't they? I mean, with the paper. And... Paper's fine. I'll save you the next issue so you can see your name in print. See, my... Well, I sure can't think of any reason why you'd be writing about me. It's customary, ain't it? What? It's customary to write about the groom. The groom? The what? what? I'm busy now, Ponson. I got a story to run down. Oh, Quint, no, what, I listen hope to you'll me. be real happy. Both of you. No, but Quint, I... Hey, for Pete's sake, Quint, wait, wait, Quint! Well, he'd lost his senses. That's the only explanation of that. Quint taught had just plain lost his senses. That me being a groom. Me? And who in the Sam Hill did he think I was going to marry? How, I, I hadn't even been keeping company. Not that I have anything against marriage, you understand. I... Like people say, it's an institution, a, a noble institution. Why, some of my best friends are married. And I, I suppose someday, not right away, of course, not very soon, but someday, maybe I'll... Well, I... Hello, Britt. I was on my way to meet you. Huh? Huh? What's the matter? You look like you just fell off a bronc. Oh, hello, Trent. I uh, guess I was kind of preoccupied. I was thinking about something. I... <laughs> I reckon we shouldn't expect you to have all your faculties in good working order. <laughs> Not at a time like this, huh? Huh? What? <laughs> oh, sure was a surprise. Never thought I'd see the day when some woman would put a saddle on you. <laughs> what? <laughs> well, we better get over to the bank. I told Mr. Fredericks we'd be there uh, by three about... Uh, he's drawing up the papers. Sure, sure. Uh, uh, Trent. Yeah? Now, about me getting married, the fact of the matter is, I... Oh, Britt, you know I was just joshing with that saddle talk. Oh, yeah. Oh, I, I well, know, I know. Truth, but... It's high time you did put down some roots. Maybe so. Maybe yes, so, Trent. Yes, you I... just wait till you got a family of your own. Why, you'll be a different man. Oh, that's possible. <laughs> that's possible, Trent. Uh, but just where did everybody get the notion that I was almost well, ready to... <laughs> you didn't think you could keep it a secret, did you? A secret? <laughs> well, you ought to know many better than that. Many? <laughs> yeah, that's who told me. Well, of course, there'd been rumors going around for several weeks, but until I heard it from Minnie herself... Oh, wait, wait, hold on here. You mean Minnie Flint? Well, who else would I mean? It's her niece you're marrying, ain't it? <laughs> You act so strange about uh, look, uh, look, now, I just want to get this straight. Many Flint told you I was marrying her niece? Well, she told everybody. I say. Well, now, Britt, I, I know how a man feels when he's getting ready to jump overboard. <laughs> I felt the same way myself, sort of awkward and embarrassed. Well, be that as <laughs> you it may. folks you're... didn't know about it so they wouldn't poke fun the way they always do. <laughs> uh, but you can't blame Minnie for spreading the news. Well, I sure do blame her. Well, now, Britt, Minnie's been like a mother to Helen, raised her since she was a baby. Well, Helen ain't never had no folks of her own. I know that. I know that. Well, then, you shouldn't mind Minnie being proud. Why shouldn't she do a little bragging, huh? Well, of course. Uh, the women folks around here seem to think you're quite a catch. Oh, now, listen, Diane. Now, Trent, well, let me tell you something. Here's the bank. I suppose that you'll want to get this business done with Pato so you can get straight over to Minnie's place, huh, Rip? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I w- would like to get over to Minnie's. 
I'm coming. Just a minute, I'm coming. <gasps> Dick. You mind if I command many? Why, uh, well... Excuse me. Thanks. It's sure nice to see you, Brett. I didn't have any idea you were in Potter Creek. I didn't have any idea at all. Uh-huh. You're, uh, you're just passing through, ain't you? You're not staying. Oh, uh, some folks seem to think I am. I, at least long enough to get married. Oh, you've heard. Well, so is everybody else, as far as I can tell. Your announcement of my engagement seems to have blanketed the whole town. Now, Britt, I can explain. Well, that's why I'm here. Why don't you just sit down over there on the sofa? I've got some oatmeal cookies out in the kitchen. I just made them this morning. Many? Yes. You just uh, can forget about the cookies. I really don't have much of an appetite. Oh. Well. I'm waiting, men. Well, uh, you see, Britt, I only did it for Helen. Now, she's a fine girl, and well, I, I wanted to help her out. Oh. On account of Quint. Quint Todd. They've been going together for nearly six years now, but he just never seemed to get around to asking her to marry him. Well, he must have his reasons. A man usually does. Oh, it's because of his father. You see, Quint's been taking care of old man Todd ever since he retired. And it must cost money, him being so sickly all the time. Uh-huh. But Quint could have married her. Helen don't expect a lot of fancy clothes in a fine house. She's the practical type. Uh, I, just just what has this got to do with me? Uh... Well, I, I had an idea. I thought if maybe there was somebody else, if Quint believed Helen was interested in another man, well, maybe he'd come to his senses and take the bull by the horns and uh, marry her himself. You've been sort of using me as a decoy. Is that uh, the idea? I knew you was working for the double G. It didn't seem likely you'd be showing up in these parts. Uh, not for the time being, anyhow. And afterward, well, after Quentin and Helen tied the knot, then it wouldn't matter. Well, you ought to be ashamed of yourself, men, both you and Helen. You don't think she knew about it. She didn't? Of course not. I didn't dare tell her. Why, she'd have never stood for it. Well, then how on earth did you manage to convince her that I was, uh, that I was uh, interested? I've got a sister living over in Black Mountain. Uh, that's not far from the double G. No, but what I mean is, how did you ever... Well, I... Hmm? There are some letters, and asked her to post them for me. They were... Uh, they were love letters, Brett. I sort of changed my handwriting and uh, signed your name. Manny Flint. Uh, <clears throat> uh, I guess you might as well know the rest, too. Uh, when Helen answered them, uh, when she wrote back to you, well, I kind of saw to it that her answers never got mailed. Well... Well, I just don't know what to say. Oh, I never dreamed it'd go I this just... far, Britt. I was sure Quint would start talking serious when he first found out that you and Helen were corresponding, but he didn't. And then, well, I thought maybe if your letters got a little more uh, sincere, well, maybe that would make him jealous. I left him around where he couldn't help seeing them whenever he come calling. You didn't actually propose in my name. Oh, no. Well. Britt. Well, uh, n not in so many words, but uh, reading between the lines, well, that's how Helen took it. She wrote you her answer two weeks ago. She wrote yes. What? Your, uh, your letters were mighty convincing. 
Well, then you better start figuring out some way of unconvincing her. Well, I don't know. Maybe... Look, men, now, Helen's got to know the truth. And if you won't do it, well, I'll just have to tell her all about it myself. Because... Oh, Constantine, I guess maybe he's... What for Well, you're here already. Hello, Helen. Oh, my goodness. Sure is good to see you, Britt. You're, you're looking fine. I saw you, Helen. I saw you. I, I wish I'd known you were coming. I wouldn't have been out doing the market. No, it didn't matter. It didn't matter. Oh, Britt, I just got to tell you. Maybe I shouldn't say it right out like this, but... Well, ever since I was a little girl, I've looked up to you so. Well, it just seemed to me you were the finest man that ever came through Powder Creek. Now, now, Helen. Uh... Of course, I, I never guessed that someday... Well, that you and I... Oh, Britt, I'm so happy about it. Excited and happy. I just hope you're as pleased as I am. Are you, Britt? Uh, 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 sure, uh, Helen. Uh, sure, sure. just wasn't anything else to say. There just wasn't. I couldn't tell Helen that I'd never really thought about her in a marrying way. And besides, many, she caused all the trouble. It was, his, it was her place to set things right. Min didn't open her mouth. No, she just stood there staring at us through her bifocals, real pleased with herself. Well, the next thing that happened was Helen invited me to supper. Oh, boy, I sure didn't want to accept all I wanted to do was just get out of the house and get out of Powder Creek, too. But, but what I wanted to do and what I did were two different things. I went back to the hotel where I was stopping, changed my shirt, and I rode out to Minnie's again. I guess Britt doesn't like my cooking at Minnie's. Hardly eating a thing. Oh, it's not that, Helen. Everything is fine. It's, I had a pretty big dinner at noon, and it uh, kind of stayed with me. More coffee, Britt. No, no thanks, man. You'll have to tell me your favorite food, Britt, so I'll know what to fix after. I, uh, well, I sort of like most everything. Apple pie, I bet. Most men like apple pie. Why, whenever Quentin and I went up... Oh. Speaking of Quentin, I ran into him today. I'd just as soon not discuss him. Always, always seemed to me to be an awful nice sort of a fella, Quint. Please, Britt. Oh, 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 sorry. Well, <clears throat> I'll just rid up the table. Oh, here. Here, let me help No, you. no, no. I can manage. Besides, you two have lots of things to talk over. Well, all right. Real warm night for this time of year. Moon, too. A harvest moon. Oh? I, I, I hadn't noticed. We ain't taken down the porch swing yet, Britt. Oh, that's all. It uh, might be kind of nice to sit outside for spell. Well, whatever you say, Helen. Whatever you say. He 
sure you're not too cold out here? Oh, no. Uh-huh. No, I'm fine. Besides, if I do get chilly, you could sort of... <coughs> Helen. Yes, <please. laughs> uh, <coughs> Helen, uh, about, about us getting married, uh, we, uh, we may not be able to have the wedding right away. Oh? Uh, well, you see, over at the Double G where I'm working, there's no place we could live. You you wrote me you had a cabin all to yourself. I did. And you said it would fix up real easy, that there'd be plenty of room for both of us. Well, it would. It would have fixed up easy, Helen. But last week, there was a kind of a fire, and that cabin just burned right down to the ground. Oh, I see. There's nothing left of it now but just a few ashes. And that's one of the reasons I came over here to Powder Creek to explain about us having to postpone the ceremony, you see. Well, you don't have to stay at the Double G, do you? Yes, I do. Yes, yes, I do. I I signed up for all the next year. Don't have any choice. So maybe maybe we ought to not be formally promised. I mean, if somebody else came along, I wouldn't blame you not for waiting. Britt, there won't be anybody else. Oh, you never know. You you never know. And a year isn't very long to wait. A year isn't long at all. No, no, I guess not. But just in case. Waiting. I've got an idea. We don't have to wait. Hey, we hey. can be married right away before you go back to the double G. Then afterward, I can stay on with Aunt Min. There'd be times when we could be together, when when you come over to Powder Creek for a week or so, like now. I never thought of that. You, you don't seem very anxious, Britt. From the sound of your letters, I thought you wanted to get married. Right oh, now. sure. Oh, sure. That's... It's just... I... Oh. Oh! Well... Well, looks like somebody's riding up this way. Why, it's Quint. Quint Todd. Oh. Oh! I'm going in the house, Britt. I don't want to talk to him. Oh, now, I, I thought you and Quint used to be pretty good friends. Yeah, that's you? all we were, just friends. He didn't mean anything to me, not really. Oh, well, you sure start running every time the name's mentioned. Right? I'm not running. Oh, all right, I'll stay. Yeah, well, well, evening, Quint. Hello, Ponsett. Helen. Good evening. You left word at the press office you wanted to see me. I left word? Uh, no, no, he means me, Helen. What? Uh, well, I figured he'd want to get the details on our plans. The paper comes out tomorrow, doesn't it? That's right. Yeah, well, I... I just want to tell you you couldn't have come at a better time. You see, we just finished settling things. The ceremony's going to be this week. Haven't decided on a day yet. How's Friday, Helen? Oh, well, yes, yes. The sooner the better. The sooner the better. You're Friday, then. Church wedding. Oh, of course, of course. I want everybody to come. Everybody in town. You better say so in the paper. There won't be time to send out formal invitations. You're invited, too, of course, Quint. I'll try and make it. There won't be much of a honeymoon. I'm heading back for the double G first part of next week. Helen's going to stay here with her aunt. She, she's going to stay in Powder Creek? Or for the time being, anyway. Don't sound like much of a marriage to me. Well, it's not the way we'd prefer it, but of course, you know, you can't always fix things up perfect. You have to take the better with the sweet, you know. Yeah, well, when I get married, I'll have a house for my wife and some money in the bank. There are more important things than houses and money. You never said so before. I never said I wanted a house of my own, did I? Well, no. But I couldn't ask you to move in with me and Pa, the way he's ailing all the time. That was just an excuse. If you loved me, you'd have asked. I did love you. You must have known I did. How was I to know? This 
There's no point in hashing it over now. Good night. Now, now, hold on. Hold on now. Hold on, Quint. Now, just, just, just a minute. Now, I, I want to get this thing straight now. I, I could hardly believe my ears just now. You you said you were in love with Helen? I still am, if you want to know it. Quint. Well, I sure don't like the sound of this. I, uh, Helen's engaged to me. How I feel about her doesn't matter. It's how she feels that counts. Ah, but if you're in love with her, now how do I know she's not in love with you? It's pretty plain that she isn't. I don't know. I don't know. You know, being in love usually works both ways, you know. I don't know about this. Well, Helen, what about this now? Fred, you, you know, I, I don't care anything about him one way or the other. Now, is that the truth? You talking the truth now? You, we're not starting our marriage on a lie now, are we? Well, maybe I was fond of Quint once, but that was before... Well... You're all over it now. All over it. Are you sure? I'm promised to you. Yeah, yeah, but I, uh... I, I wouldn't hold you to that promise. As a matter of fact, I'd insist you break it if I thought there was somebody else. Well, that's mighty generous of you, Britt. But you don't need to worry. Of course, if our marriage didn't go through, I'd be kind of upset. Hurt, maybe. Oh, I wouldn't ever hurt you, Britt. Not for anything. Oh, I'd get over it. I'd get over it. man always does. At least I always have before. Before? Oh, sure, sure. Lots of times. Oh, yeah. You wrote me that I was the only girl you, you ever... Oh, oh well, I, I... To tell you the truth, I, I, what I meant was that uh, you were the only girl I'd ever been engaged to, you see. Oh. That's what I meant. <laughs> looks to me like the choice is up to you, Helen. Yes, yes, I... I think that's the way I see it, too. If you're smart, you'll choose Ponset. I sure haven't got anything to offer you. Just a small-town newspaper that wouldn't even give us a decent living. Oh, now, stop talking yourself down, Quint. Now, the Powder Creek Press, one of the finest weeklies in this part of the country. Now, Brit you know that. Well, Britt, he's a six-shooter. Why, he's practically famous. All I am is a cowpoke. I'm just an old cowpoke. I don't even know whether I'm going to have a job from year to year. Well, just just a, the same. Just I an old any cowpoke. any girl in the territory would be pleased. Oh, be quiet, both of you. I think neither one of you wants me. I know who you are and what you are, and I know which one I'm... Well, which one I... Britt. Oh, uh-huh. You're getting a fine man, Helen. Quint, I told you to be quiet. Britt, I'm sorry. I hope you won't think that I'm, I'm fickle or, or don't know my own mind. But, well, you... You are the sick shooter. You don't really need a wife. Helen, you don't mean you're going to take me. And Quint... Well, he needs somebody to look after him. I've seen that house of his. Well, I'll bet the place hasn't had a good spring house cleaning for the last four years. For Quint's father, he's a nice old man. And with a woman to look after him, maybe he won't be so sickly all the time. Well, you still haven't said that you love Quint. I... I guess I've been in love with him ever since. You won't think too badly of me, Quint. No, no. No, I... It's kind of a blow, I guess. But like I said, it'll take a little while to get over it, and I'll, I'll manage somehow. I'll, uh, I'll manage. Well, I left Quint and Helen standing out there on the porch. I went inside to get my hat. 
Minnie was hovering by the front window. And when she saw me, she shut it real quick and tried to appear innocent. Well, it looks like your scheme finally worked out, man. My scheme? Seems to me it was more yours than mine. Well, what, what are you talking about? You know very well that you're asking Quint over here tonight was what brought things to a head. Well, I, I just wanted to make certain he had all the facts about our wedding, that's all. Right? So the story in the paper would be accurate. Oh, it's sure, Bitcher, sure, I know. <sighs> Poor Quint. What? Well, I guess he deserves it after making her wait all this time. Well, what do you mean, Minnie? Well, I was just thinking... He's going to have to toe the line real close, and he's not going to win many family arguments, neither. Well, I don't see why not. Well, I'll tell you why not. Every time Helen has trouble with him, all she'll say is, don't forget I could have married the six-shooter, but I gave him up for you. And Quint will just have to sit there and take it, no matter how often she says it. Oh, now, man, you know. Well, Quint and Helen were married the following Sunday. I stayed over for the wedding. Matter of fact, I was best man. Both of them insisted on that. But I didn't enjoy the ceremony very much. I, uh, I kept thinking that, you know, that it could have been me standing there saying the I do's. And, gee whiz, I sure was a close call. The Six Shooter is an NBC Radio Network production in association with Review Productions. It is based on a character created by Frank Burt, and the transcribed story is written by him. Mr. Stewart may currently be seen in the Universal International picture, The Glenn Miller Story. Others in the cast were Barbara Eiler, Virginia Gregg, Bill Johnstone, Sam Edwards, and Herb Biker. Special music for this program was by Basil Adler, and the entire production is under the direction of Jack Johnstone. All characters and incidents were fictitious, and any resemblance to actual characters or incidents is purely coincidental. This is Hal Gibney speaking. James Stewart as the sixth shooter in December of 1953. You heard it here on the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. With terrific writing, acting, and music, some of the best old-time radio detective shows managed to treat even frightful situations in a non-dragnet, light-hearted way. Philip Marlowe, Mr. and Mrs. North, Sam Spade, etc. But few went as far as the series featuring another Hollywood star, Dick Powell who stayed true to his song-and-dance-man roots in his Richard Diamond series. Here's an example. It comes from August 6, 1949, NBC and Richard Diamond, Private Detective. Here is another in NBC's great parade of new shows. Dick Powell.
as Richard Diamond, private detective. Hello there. This is Diamond. You know, I'm sure a lot of you people have never seen this big city of New York that I live in. But you ought to. It's really worth seeing. I don't mean a four-bit tour in a bus. I mean that one time that you stop along the way and really take a good look. Maybe it's from a building 40 floors up. You brace yourself against the stiff morning breeze and you lean out and watch the biggest city in the world wake up, stretch, roll up its progressive sleeves and go to work. Or maybe it's 6 o'clock in the evening and you're on your way home. You hold up at a busy intersection and you feel the colossus even before you see it. You look behind, to the right, the left, and then up. And there it is. You could only take in three blocks, maybe, but the pushing crowds and towering buildings are a common denominator for the Bronx, Park Avenue, and Flatbush. The rest you have to imagine because your dinner's waiting. Well, I'm lucky in a way. My dinner's ready when I start throwing nickels in the automat. My meals and my time are freelance, and my work is a ringside ticket to the biggest city in the world. Sure, it's lonely sometimes, and trouble walks the streets on a 24-hour beat. But that's how I pay my rent. Trouble's my silent partner, and he sends me everything from divorce labels to some marked City Morgue, DOA. Dead on arrival. One night last week, old man Trouble was sitting curled up on a doorstep, watching two thugs hiding in the shadows of a building... Trouble had a big smile because he was cooking up a king-sized mess for yours truly. Hello. Yeah? Ain't he ever gonna come out? He'll come out. We just gotta wait, that's all. Hello. Yeah, what is it? I hope he comes out soon. That cop car is doing a little while. Yeah. Hey, hey, supposing they drive up the street just when he comes out. Then we don't use the artillery. We don't? We follow him and get him someplace else. Okay, okay. Hey, hey, Lou. What? Here he comes. Yeah. You ready? Yeah, sure. Uh, look, he's got his two big watchdogs with him. Get set. Now. We better get going. Don't run, stupid. You think we was being clocked? Hey, Lou. There's that lousy cop car. Come on. Uh, where you go? In this club. Come on, hurry. Hey, Lou, supposing the cops come down here. Shut up. Table, gentlemen. Uh, yeah, for my friend and me. Right this way. Picture, like to me a picture to take. Lou, are you crazy? We can't sit down at no table. They'll have the whole neighborhood covered in a few minutes. We can sit for a second and we'll go out the back door. Here you are, gentlemen. Is this all right? Oh, just standing. Yeah, this is just fine. Thank you. Very good, sir. I'll send a waiter right over. Oh, now, come on, Lou. Let's blow this joint. Wait till he gets further away. Please, Lou. Okay. Now you go first. Take your time off, Molly. Picture, sir? Huh? No, miss. We don't want no photographs. Hey, yeah, we, we don't want none. Thanks. Just the same. Oh, that's okay. Picture? Like a souvenir picture to take home? Yeah, thank you. Well, come on. Right behind you. Now, hold it right there. No, no, no. Don't move. Thank you. That will be developed. Hey, Mel, hold it a minute. Yeah, what is it? It's a dame. This is no time to start looking at dames. No, you fathead. The one with the camera. So she's got good-looking legs, but we got... Uh-oh. What's the matter? There's a cop in the door. Get going, but take your time. I'll tell you about the dame later. Oh, Lynn. Yeah? What is it, Monsieur Davis? Where are you going? Back to the dark room to develop these pictures. You always said not to keep the customers waiting, didn't you, Monsieur Davis? I'm glad to see you listen to your employer. 
I, uh, I'll just come along to see how this batch turns out. This batch isn't any different from the last hundred batches. We'll just go along and see. Oh, that does it. I beg your pardon. I said that does it. You cornered me in that dark room once, and it was all I could do to keep you away from me. Lynn. If you think that just because you run this place, you've got a right to make passes at me, you better get yourself a new girl. Maybe that isn't such a bad idea. Come to think of it, I kind of go for it myself. And as long as I'm quitting, here's something you've been asking for for a long time. Oh. Hey, what do you think you're doing? Now get out of my way. That phony French accent may fool the customers, but it doesn't fool me. You get out of here. Pick up your check and get out of here this minute, you, you little... Oh. Now, what were you going to say? Mr. Davis? Get out. Get out. Diamond Detective Agency, if you've lost a body, let us dig it up. Oh, Rick, that's awful. Depends on who we dig up and how long he's been there. Rick. Hello, Helen, baby. You're simply gruesome. I know it, but my tongue matches my shirts. I tell everybody I've been licking barber poles. Oh. Nah. Thought you'd catch me, didn't you? No, I don't think I'll ever catch you. Oh, I think you're the prettiest little old gal in the whole dang breast of the state. Flattery will get you nowhere. Have we got a date tonight? Only if the elevator is still running. Mr. Diamond? Hmm? Oh, uh, I'll call you back later, honey. I think I just cited the client. Mr. Diamond, please, I- I've got to talk to you. Well, honey, go back and shut the door. If too much smoke gets out of here, the ceiling will cave in. What? Oh, yes. All right. Rick, did I hear a girl's voice? I think so. But maybe she just wears those clothes because her mother never had a haircut. What does she look like? I can't tell you right now. I'm parked behind a curb. Rick! The door is closed, Mr. Diamond. Now may I speak with you, please? Uh, Helen, I'll call you later. I don't care if she is a prospective client. You face the window when you're talking business. Well, there's a cigarette ad out there. Why look out at an ad when the slogan's right here in my office? Slogan? Yeah, you know, so round, so firm, so... Rick. Bye, baby. Now, uh, <clears throat> you were saying... I, uh, I want to hire you to protect me, Mr. Diamond. I know an easier way. Wear a diving suit. Mr. Diamond, put your eyes back in your head. And please listen to me. My life is in danger. There's an answer for that, too, but go on. Tell me the story. Well, my name is Knight. Miss? Yes. Yes. Uh, in the last two days, there have been several attempts on my life. Uh, by whom? Well, I don't know. Well, do you know why anyone would want to kill you? No, no, I don't. Well, now we're getting someplace. Don't be funny, Mr. Diamond. I tell you that twice an attempt has been made on my life. How? Well, the first time a man followed me home and tried to break into my apartment. I screamed and then frightened him off. Maybe he was lonesome. What about the other time? Well, I don't know whether it was the same man or not, but the next night, a man jumped out of a car and tried to make me go with him. I kicked him and ran down the block. Sounds more like a kidnapping than attempted homicide. Why didn't you tell this to the police? Oh, I did. They investigated, but I couldn't give them enough to go on, so they just put a man watching my apartment. I bet he has to stand in line. Didn't they give you an escort? No. They seemed to think I was after some kind of publicity or something. Mm. They told me it was all right to go out in the daytime, but to stay in my apartment for the next couple of nights. Sounds reasonable. Will you help me, Mr. Diamond? I'm afraid this will happen again. Uh, my dear, my my fee is a hundred a day in expenses. A uh, hundred a day? Mm. Oh, Mr. Diamond, I don't have that kind of money. Well, neither do I, but if I starve, I do it with dignity. I can't lower my fee, Miss Knight. I never have. Hmm. Well, then, I just will have to find another detective agency. There are a lot of good ones. I'm sorry, the rule might bend a little, but it won't break. If I took the job knowing you couldn't pay half the fee, ten minutes later, some guy from Texas with an oil-soaked wallet might want to hire me to count his gas stations. 
Ah, sorry. Sorry, but it's a tough world, Miss Knight. Yeah. Well, thanks, Mr. Diamond. Maybe you could recommend someone? Oh, any of them are good. Just close your eyes and open the classified. Well, goodbye, Mr. Diamond. I'm sorry. So am I. My conscience just slit its throat. Like you said, Mr. Diamond, it's a tough world. Uh, yeah, the toughest. Goodbye. Yeah. No, nuts. Yeah, what is it? Diamond? He's hiding his head in the desk. I'll get him for you. Come on out, you heel. Look, I don't know who this is, but put Diamond on the pipe. This is Diamond. Wait till I get the bad taste out of my mouth. Look, you can wet your whistle later. I've always wondered what happened to people who said that. Is there a dame in your office named Knight? <sighs> well, there was. She left just before you called. Well, let me give you a little tip. If she hired you, you're going to start feeling overworked right now, so tell her you don't want the job. Oh, I am, huh? Yeah. Well, your nearest relative is going to have to come down and identify the body. You know something? No, what? A couple of minutes ago, I proved that a good businessman can start looking like a big fat heel for a lousy hundred a day in expenses. Huh? Don't work on it too long, but stop in sometime, Buster. I'd like to help you spit out your teeth. You better listen to what I say, Shamus. You're way out of your class in this one. I'm always out of my class when I talk with slobs. And if you don't like it, look me up. I'll be working for Miss Knight. I went out of my office in a hurry. When somebody tries to push me around, it's like giving a kid a slingshot in a hothouse. You can tell him all night not to do it, but by morning, he's busted every window in the place. I hoped I might catch Miss Knight before she got to the street, so I grabbed the elevator and went down to the first floor. I couldn't find her in the lobby, so I went out on the sidewalk. The street was crowded, but those curves showed up like a covered wagon on Madison Avenue. She was just starting across Broadway when a big black sedan pulled up and a guy climbed out after her. I took off as fast as my little 175 pounds would carry me and cut Kitty Corner across the street with an eye on the black sedan. The guy had her by the arm, and I knew when she stopped struggling, he'd show her his gun. I was on a dead run, going to make like a big hero, but his 38 changed my mind. He missed with the first one, and then he shoved the girl away from him and tried again. I could hear the slug whine past my head, so I hit the sidewalk right next to the girl. He jumped for the car. I just lay there and watched him drive off. Did, did you get the license number? No, it was covered with mud. Gee, I guess you must look pretty silly just sitting here. Yeah, got some jacks? I'm a wizard for this. Maybe you believe me now, Mr. Diamond. Yeah. Here, let me give you a hand up. Thanks. Now, come on, let's get out of here. We're collecting a crowd. Where are we going? I know a policeman who can't understand attempted assault. He says it's not necessary. And believe me, baby, he's got a cure for it. Come on. I hailed a cab, and ten minutes later, Len Knight and I were walking into the 5th Precinct Police Station. Sergeant Otis looked up and started to say something, but when he saw what I was with, he changed it to a low whistle. Oh, stop puckering, Otis. You look like you've been unstopping sinks. Oh, very funny, wise guy. Um, how about the introduction? Uh, Miss Knight, Sergeant Otis. Homicide's answer to mercy killings. Hello, Sergeant. Yeah, don't pay no attention to him, Miss Knight. He was born with a nasty disposition. Is the lieutenant in, Sergeant? Uh, yeah, go ahead. He'll see you. Uh, nice meeting you, Miss Knight. Uh, nice meeting you, Sergeant. <laughs> Otis. Yeah? Stop clucking. You'll have every rooster in town in here. 
Hello, Walt. Who's that with you? Uh, this is Miss Knight. Is she dead? Walt, say something nice to the lieutenant, dear. After that last remark? Oh, look, Miss Knight, I'm sorry, but this guy you're with has a talent for finding homicides. I'm suspicious of everyone I see him with. Because even if they walk into my office with him, he'd do it just to confuse me. Well, I'm quite alive, Lieutenant. Then let me give you a friendly tip, Miss Knight. Stay away from this guy. His sense of humor will turn your hair white. Oh, isn't he a dream? Walt, Miss Knight wants protection. Yeah, I see what you mean. Walt, now stop gnawing on the desk and listen to me. Miss Knight is in line for a murder or for kidnapping. I knew it. She wants protection, and you're going to give it to her. That's not my department. This is homicide, isn't it? Of course it is. But you know very well we don't go to work until you're dead. Well, honey, I guess you'll just have to rile it and get yourself killed. That's the only way. Now you stop that. Send her to another department. They'll give her all the protection she needs. She's been there. They stuck a guy out in front of her apartment. Now, look. I just saw Hood try to muscle her into a car. He took a shot at me, and you know bullets give me that let-down feeling. Now, put one of your boys with her until I can do something about clearing this thing up. What's your full name, Miss Knight? Uh, Lynette. Lynn, for short. Where do you live and where do you work? I live at 419 West 48th Street, apartment 309. I quit my job three days ago. Where was this job? The Circus Club on 52nd Street. I took pictures. Took pictures? Yeah, you know. Souvenirs of the customers. Oh. Why'd you quit? Well, my boss got grabby. I slapped him around. Hey, uh, wait a minute. Wait a minute, honey. Did, did you say Circus Club... 52nd Street? Yeah. What about it? Walt, didn't somebody gun down Al Rigoletta and two of his boys right near there? Say, you're right. Three nights ago. You didn't see that shooting, did you, Miss Knight? Well, no, but I read about it the next day. Well, if you didn't see it, they couldn't want to get at you just because you're a witness. Oh, this is screwy. What have we got to work on? You just put a man to guard her. I'm going to see what I can do. All right, but only because I owe you a favor. Otis. Yeah, Lieutenant? Get in here. Otis? Yes, Otis. He's not as stupid as he looks. Want to bet? He couldn't be and live. Uh, you want me, Lieutenant? Not for keeps. I want you to stay with Miss Knight here until I tell you to come home. Somebody's trying to get rough with her. Got it? Yeah. <laughs> Walt, have you found any eggs around the office? Eggs? Otis, where do you hide your nest? Oh, Lieutenant, make this guy lay off for me. Yeah, Rick, lay off the poor guy. Otis? Uh, yeah, yeah, Lieutenant? Stop standing on one leg and wait outside, you mallet head. Oh, oh, yellow. Uh, Walt, I'll keep in touch. Okay. Uh, Mr. Diamond. Uh, yes? Thanks. I'll make it up to you some way. Don't strain yourself. I like an obligation to be fun. It will be. Rick. Yeah? Bye. I left the 5th Precinct and headed for the circus club. It was a small place with sawdust on the floor and colored decorations like the inside of a circus tent. The place was still closed, but a short, dapper little guy in a gray business suit answered my knock. Yes, you're from the police. Why? You need them? I just put in a call. Someone burglarized the place last night. Oh. You know a girl named Knight? Lynn Knight? That's it. I most certainly do. I fired her three nights ago. If she's in some kind of trouble with the police, she deserves it. You must run this place. That's right. My name's Davis. Would you like to take a look at the room that was broken into? I certainly would. What did they steal? That's just it. I don't know. They turned it upside down, but I can't imagine what they were after. It's a dark room. A dark room? Yes. I have several girls that take pictures of the customers. They developed the prints in the back of the cafe. Right this way. Ah, uh, forget it. But I thought you wanted... I'm not from the police, Mr. Davis. I'm a private detective. Uh, tell me, did Miss Knight turn in all her film the night she quit? I fired her. Difference of opinion. Did she turn in all her film? I know. 
As a matter of fact, she didn't. She left with her camera, and several customers got rather angry when the pictures weren't developed. You mean her last roll was still in that camera? It must have been. She didn't leave it in the dark room. I looked. Mm. Where's the phone? Right over there. Walt, I think I've got something. Diamond, I've got something, too. A sour stomach and headache. What's the matter? Otis followed that night dame halfway home and some guy stepped out of an alley and split his head with a sap. He's down in emergency getting his skull crocheted. What about the girl? We don't know. Otis can't remember. Oh, that's dandy. I'll call you back. Now, you wait a minute. I can't. Bye. I had one of those muscle-bound hunches. And I had to work fast or Lynn Knight was going to get herself kicked around and maybe end up in the city morgue. I remembered her dress. And 15 minutes later, I was standing in front of room 309. I could hear the phone ringing from somewhere inside, so I waited to see if anyone answered it. On the third ring, I tried the door. Well, well, well. Hello? Uh, Who is this? Uh, this is Diamond. Oh, thank goodness. This is Lynn Knight. Well, where the devil are you? Lieutenant Levinson said you'd disappeared. I'm in a bar on 50th Street. That man who tried to shove me into his car this afternoon hit Sergeant Otis on the head, and I've been running ever since. Now, how did you know I was here? Oh, I didn't. I called your office and got no answer, so I just took a chance. Maybe you'd gone looking for me. I was, but I was looking for something else, too. Tell me, baby, have you got a camera? Why, I did have. Did have? What happened to it? Well, I sort of uh, sold it. Oh, you mean you hocked it? I didn't need it anymore, and I did need the money. You stay right where you are, and I'll be down. What's the name of the place? Uh, oh, 2320 Club. Please hurry, Mr. Diamond. I'm scared. Okay. Uh, I want to ask you something else. Hello? Hello? Oh, I, I thought you'd hung up. No, I thought you... Lynn. Yeah? Is there an extension on this phone? Why, yes, in the bedroom. Say, so you don't think... I don't know. Wait a minute. Hey, what are you guys... Oh. Mr. Diamond? Mr. Diamond, are you still on the... Okay, Mel. Let's go get the dame. Hey, that was pretty smart waiting around and listening in on the extension loop. What do you want me to do with the shamus? He looks like he can still hear things. Well, turn him off. Sure. Okay. Okay, let's go. What are you limping for? I kicked him with the wrong foot. I got a lousy, ingrown toenail. I laid there trying to crawl back to a more sensible way of life. He'd kicked me so hard that it shook my eyes loose and they'd run back into my head to hide. Everything was suddenly crammed into a long funnel that disappeared into the floor and I felt pretty sick. I was stuck in an acre of colored molasses and trying to get myself loose was like pulling a pillar through a garden hose. When I finally made it, I stuck my head under a sink and let the cold water bring me back to normal. Then I headed for the 2320 Club in a hurry. Something I could do for you? I'm looking for a girl, but I don't see her. Ah, they come and go. It's like that around here. She had on a green skirt and a jersey blouse. Couldn't miss her unless you don't like girls. Oh, her. Uh, She used the phone and then she left. Alone? No, a couple of ugly-looking guys came in and she left with them. Hey, you know her? Yeah. Well, she forgot her purse. You might tell her. Her purse? Let me see it. Oh, no. Here's the badge, Buster. Oh, Okay. He handed me the purse, and I went through it. Nothing much but a pawn ticket. 
I looked at it, and that hunch started biting my leg, so I took off for the pawn shop. Good afternoon. Uh, here's a ticket. I want to claim the article. Sure, sure. A-11249. Here, here it is. Ah, lovely camera. Bingo. Did the girl sell it to you? No, she just wants me to claim it for her. Well, be careful. She said there was still some film in it. She wanted to come back and get it when she got a new job. Uh, $15, please. Yeah, here you are. Is there a place around here where I can get the film developed? Right across the street. You can see it from here. Ah, thanks. Yep, yep, it's coming up, but we'll, we'll leave it in a little longer. Hey, maybe I'm nosy, but what's so important about this roll of film? I'll tell you better when I look at it. Well, I'll turn on the light. There you are. Yeah. Well, nothing on this one. Hmm. Mm. Nope. Hey, look at this. Oh, some old guy with his wife. Is that what you wanted to find? You see those two guys in the background that look like they're just sneaking out of a chicken house? Yeah, so what? The one in the back is Lou Garzoni. The gangster? Yeah. Give me that negative. Let's get out of here. Well, you two holding hands in there? Hey, who are you and what's the gun for? Uh, take it easy, Doc. He shoots people. That's right. Now back into the room. Uh, all right, but take it easy with that gun. Give me that negative, Shamus. Okay. Hmm. Now, where's the picture? If it, it's still in the juice. Well, get it. I'll get it. That's better. Well, come on, come on. I can't seem to find it. Oh, yeah? Look for yourself. I'll look. See? Say, <laughs> you threw it in his face. That stuff oh, might blind him. So now he can't see to kill you. My eyes. Get me to the doctor, quick. After you Where tell me where the girl is. 212 West 45th Street, apartment 513. Harry, I can't stand it. Call a doctor for this guy and then get hold of Lieutenant Levinson, 5th Precinct. Tell him to meet me in front of 212 West 45th and to step on it. Yes, all right, I'll boy. take those pictures. I can't stand it. I'm Ah, oh, sure you can. It's no fun looking at the electric chair anyway. Apartment 513, he said. Oh, here it is. Yeah. If Lou Garzoni's in there, we got to take him by surprise or he'll knock off the girl. Otis is down in the alley, so he won't get out that way. Well... Here goes. I hope it works. Yeah, who is it? Oh, uh, Mel had an accident. He sent me up to tell you. What's your name? Tony Vega. Well, why'd you say so? I thought you was in stir. Coppers! You dirty duck Walt. Gonna... Oh! Oh! How about it, Walt? He's on his way. Where's the girl? Probably in the other room. Yeah, yeah. Take it easy, baby. All right. I'll get the gag on. Now, there you are. Oh, Mr. Diamond. Mr. Diamond, he was going to kill me. Yeah, I know. Is she all right? Sure, Walt. How, uh, how about Garzoni? No hurry for the wagon. Oh. Now, will you please tell me how you knew Lou Garzoni was in this apartment? Well, he and his boy were after a picture Miss Knight took. Yeah, this one. Ah. There they are in the background. He was an old enemy of Al Rigoletto, wasn't he, Walt? Yeah. Why? Oh, I bet he was the one who rubbed him out. Then he and his boy ducked into the nightclub. Garzoni saw his picture taken, so they went after Len. Why, what? What, Mr. Diamond? Oh, what's the matter? You finally called me Len. Well, 
Lynn. <laughs> Uh, you go home and take it easy. I might stop by tomorrow. What's the matter with tonight? I've got a piano lesson. Bye. Otis! Yeah, Lieutenant? Is it all over? Yes, you hammerhead. Now get out of that garbage can and see if you can find your way back to the station. Stop it. Okay. Rick. Hmm? Tell me about the girl in your office. Oh, nice kid. Lovely eyes. I'm jealous. Good for you. And I'm mad. You're so busy. You like the new piano? Oh, yes, yes. It's a big one. <laughs> Must have taken a herd of elements to make the keyboard. Sing something. What does Rita Baby want? I don't care. Okay. Oh! I don't care. I don't care. Rick. Well, that's what you said. You said that. Yes, you did. Something nice. All right. Everywhere you go, sunshine follows you. Oh, that's such a beautiful tune. Really? Everywhere you go, skies are always blue. Rick. I'm going to finish it. Children love you. They seem to know. You bring the roses right out of the snow. The whole world says hello. Everywhere you go. You suppose the guy who wrote that song ever got shot at? (laughs) Oh, Rick, you idiot. Come here. Oh. This is much more fun than piano lessons. Uh. You have just heard Richard Diamond, Private Detective, starring Dick Powell. Helen was played by Virginia Gregg, Lieutenant Levinson by Ed Begley. Also in our cast were Wilms Herbert, Joan Banks, Paul Dubob, Herbert Ellis, and Sidney Miller. Music was under the direction of Frank Worth. Richard Diamond is written by Blake Edwards and directed by Richard Sandville. And now, Dick Powell. Friends, I want to remind you of the wonderful group of programs NBC has on tap for tomorrow afternoon and evening. Shows like Hollywood Calling, Guy Lombardo, Four Star Playhouse, The Ethel Merman Show and the NBC Symphony. For the best in radio listening tomorrow and always, keep your dial tuned to your favorite NBC station. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. The ever-charming Dick Powell as Richard Diamond, private detective, in the summer of 1949. He came to you via the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Our co-producer is Jill Arold Bailey. Barnaby Bristol and Mike Kidd are the audio engineers. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University, celebrating 60 years. In HD at 88.5... 
on your smart speaker and at wamu.org. Nowadays, we wouldn't call a round-the-world tour comprehensive if it virtually ignored an entire continent. That Egypt was Norman Corwin's only stop in Africa on his one-world flight in 1946 was a reflection of the times and of the then still-in-force colonialism and the racism that marked it. What he saw and heard in Egypt is still striking, though he never made it south of the Sahara Desert. In India, however, the soon-to-be Prime Minister, Jawaharlal Nehru, mentioned South Africa and many other things. His comments came 75 years ago, later broadcast on March 4, 1947, in the eighth chapter of Norman Corwin's CBS series, One World Flight. The Columbia Broadcasting System presents One World Flight. You are listening to Muslim prayers coming from the loudspeaker system of the Muhammad Ali Mosque in Cairo, as heard above the cheering of thousands of Egyptians on the day last summer that Britain returned the famous citadel to Egypt. This historic recording is among several authentic sounds and voices transcribed inside Egypt and India to be heard tonight on this eighth of a series of 13 broadcasts based on Norman Corwin's 37,000-mile global tour as first winner of the Wendell Wilkie One World Flight Award. last August, in the holy Muslim month of Ramadan, the Union Jack that had flown over Cairo's ancient citadel for 65 years came down, and the green flag of Egypt was raised by its King Farouk. The act was a symbol of Egypt's independence from the British, and it was cheered by a throng gathered in a square below the citadel. That night, both the citadel and the Muhammad Ali mosque behind it were floodlit. A great searchlight, the kind used during the war to spot aircraft, was trained on the flag. The evening was clear and warm with exhalations from the African desert stretching away on all sides. The celebrants seemed to cheer every stirring of the flag in the breeze that came off the swollen Nile. And as though to contribute to the vivid mixture of ancient and modern, which is Cairo, an airplane came up from nowhere and flew low over the scene. For a moment... Its motors obliterated the voice of the muezzin chanting praises for Allah on the public address system. On a rooftop in the neighborhood of the citadel where we had set up our CBS recording microphone, 
A group of Arab women sang with an abandon that seemed to go along naturally with a bizarre setting of minarets, airplanes, floodlights, domes, cupolas, cheering, and amplified prayer. It was all colorful and wonderful under the amber moon of Ramadan. Everybody seemed gay and animated. Certainly the celebration of independence is a joyous occasion to any nation. But in the hot, bright light of the next morning, it was perhaps reasonable to ask what this independence represented. Independence of whom? For whom? Whether the people who had cheered it last night would profit by it tomorrow. Exactly what these people were, how they lived, what they thought, whether they had fears, hopes, ambitions. We set out, a few of us, to look for answers. Our party consisted of Lee Bland, who handled the recorder, George Polk, CBS Cairo correspondent, Marcel Hitchman, a writer who served as our interpreter, and myself. Our first stop was in Abdeen Square, in the vicinity of the King's Palace, and I intercepted the first person to come along. He was a boy, better dressed than most to be seen on Cairo streets. I asked how many were in his family. What sounds at first like Godfather is the boy saying, I Godfather, and so forth. I Godfather, and Godmother, and Godsister, and Godfather, and everything. All living in the same place? Yeah. How many rooms? Two rooms. He said he was a mechanic, that he earned 15 piastres a day, which is the equivalent of about 60 cents. In the following recording, you will hear questions by Polk and myself. The interruption of a small child standing nearby, and toward the end, the striking of bells in a tower of the Abdeen Palace. Uh, what sort of food do you eat? Me? I, I eat in the morning food, and eat afternoon meat, and something like that. Well, do you buy all this at 15, uh, 15 piastres a day? I take 15 piastres every day, yeah. How much? I take, I, take five, I take 15 piastres every day. I smoke the cigarette by five piastres and keep 10 in my home to get some new food for myself. I you have to pay food and rent and everything yes. for 15 piastres yes. a day. That's yes. 60 cents a day that yes. you make, and you pay for all your family. How many children do you have? I have three children. Yeah, three children. How old are you? Me, I'm about 16 years old. You're 16 years old. You have three children. Yes, sir. He said he wasn't worried about anything, said he had heard a rumor that the war was over, but he wasn't sure. He was somewhat better informed about American jargon, for he suddenly used the phrase hubba hubba. You've seen some American movies, huh? Yeah. Is that where you got hubba hubba? Hubba hubba and take it easy. What else? <laughs> who did you, who said hubba hubba? Hey? Who, who did you hear say hubba hubba? American people who say hubba hubba. Well, I'm an American. I don't say haba haba. No, some soldier walking street to make haba haba take it easy. Through Mrs. Hitchman, we next questioned a man named Abdu, who said he was a servant earning seven Egyptian pounds a month, or about twenty-one dollars. I said, "Are you happy now with your life?" He says, "Well, who is happy? Why are you not happy?" Because everything is expensive. I asked what he thought of Egypt's independence, of the situation in Palestine, whether he knew the war was over. He said, I don't care about politics and about war. Who cares about these things? I asked whether he was at all interested in the world outside of Egypt, whether he would perhaps like to visit some other country. 
Well, should I go? If there is work somewhere else, all right. But I mean, to go just like that, where? Let's see. Does he ever get to see a movie? Do you want to go to a He never went to a cinema in his life. Would he like to go to one? Why should I go? He said he had never read a book, that he never read newspapers, that he was not interested in these things at all. While this was going on, a crowd had gathered and there were rumbles of suspicion and hostility. I started to ask questions of an Arab in a long blue galabia, and he told Polk... He doesn't like this idea. He thinks it's an insult to his dignity. Other people in the crowd said they were afraid of being recorded. I asked what accounted for this attitude. Well, it's quite difficult to explain. First of all, it never happened to them before. And then their uh, technical knowledge is very small. And they don't know what is this. And they think it's mixed up with some movie business. And uh, they just, just now especially, they're not very friendly towards foreigners. And uh, they are afraid of stating things definitely. They don't like people who ask them questions. They are always like that. You see, when people ask them questions, it generally brings trouble. It means there is a policeman who comes to ask them questions or things like that. Nobody ever asks them what they think. Egypt was the 11th country visited in our one-world flight, and though we'd seen bad conditions in other countries, this, for a traveler heading east, was the beginning of really morbid ignorance, squalor, disease. To the eye, Cairo is attractive, both in its medieval and modern aspects. It's checkered with mosques and palaces, ancient walls, towers, domes. The old city has bazaars and narrow winding streets, the newer quarters along the river achieve a certain European colonial dignity. To the east, behind the citadel, stand barren hills, and beyond that, sandy desert. Just out of town, at the edge of the western desert, are the great pyramids, and in between, the Nile, tree-shaded, romantic, polluted, supporting life and agriculture along its banks, just as it has done since earliest history. In this austere land where so much of civilization was cradled, there is small tradition for one world or for anything resembling democracy as we know it. The world of Egypt has been by turns Memphite, Theban, Syrian, Persian, Macedonian, Roman, Arabian, Turkish, French, British. Dozens of wars have swept up and down the Nile and have zigzagged across the deserts and the only constant factor since the days of the pharaohs has been the depression of millions, the poverty the relentless ignorance. There are schools in Egypt, yes, for the better off. There are also, also health services of a sort. We were told about them. But as we went around the city, stopping ordinary Kyrenes on the street, there was little to show the effect of either education or sanitation. In a big square known as Madanis Melia, one of the newer and better sections of the city, we interviewed people at random one night. I asked a cook named Ahmed what he thought of conditions in the country. Uh, too many, too many people no work, too many people no eat, too many people uh, no money. Too many people no work, too many people no eat, too many people no money. When I asked him what he thought should be done about it, he answered that the government should open shops and factories in order to create more work. He said he was a monarchist because he read in the papers that the king wanted to improve Egypt. I then asked about his knowledge of politics. Have you ever heard the word fascism? 
Among those we interviewed on Cairo's streets, Ahmed was exceptionally well informed. More typical of the attitude we met with everywhere was that of Mohammed, a waiter. The regime of Ismail Sidki Pasha, since succeeded as Prime Minister by Fahmi al-Nakrachi, was under considerable attack and criticism at the time, and I asked Mohammed what he thought about it. Well, how do you feel about the government in Egypt today? The government of Sidki Pasha? Says we don't care at all in all these troubles. We don't participate in these troubles, and we don't hear anything about it, and we don't want to hear anything about it. I asked Mrs. Hitchman, long an observer of Egyptian affairs, why so many of the people shied away from any kind of political thought or expression. They are afraid. They are afraid of every kind of authority. They know that every time they come in contact with authority, they are unhappy. So they are afraid of doctors, they are afraid of policemen, they are afraid of the government, they are afraid of everything. The ignorance which lay like a pall over the people was not confined to any particular district. It should be borne in mind that these recordings were made not in a backwoods area, in tobacco road country, but on the streets of the biggest city in Africa, a modernized, busy city which for centuries has had access to the best of Eastern and Western culture. In the hope that samplings made thus far were not entirely representative of the Egyptian man in the street, I tried again in still another district. The first man here was a worker, father of two children, sole support of his mother and father. He earned a dollar a day. In the following recording, you will hear the man say, in answer to a question, throughout the Middle East, this means no. Has this man uh, ever been outside of Cairo? Never. Does he read? He doesn't read, he doesn't write. Has he ever seen a moving picture? No, no, he said. Has he ever heard a radio? He says he listens to music from the Egyptian state broadcasting, but not to the news. On his own radio? Does he own a radio? You look at me with the expression which means uh, what a foolish question. It is, because they hear the radio in that way. They hang a radio very high up the ceiling of the cafe, and it's kept open night and day, so everybody hears the radio. I see. There are very few home sets here. They just can't dream of it. They haven't got enough money to buy clothes. How could they buy radios? We next talked to a man who said his home was four miles from the Nile, and I asked when he had last seen the river. He hasn't seen the Nile for the last eight years. That's four miles away, and he hasn't seen it in eight years. Now, fine. I don't want to let this boy go away. Uh, I'd like to talk to him. Has he ever gone to school? Ross from Madrasa Abadan? Ross to Tlaht. Come here, my Athenak. He went only for two months to school, and then he left. How long ago was that? Emta. 
تمام؟ بالي كتير يعني بالي جي تلت سنين اوف ثري يوز اجو هاو اولد از يو ناو؟ عمرك كام؟ وقت 16 سنة He looks about An airplane passed overhead a moment later, and I asked the boy whether he'd like to fly in one. At first he said no, and then he said, tomorrow, if I work for Hitler, maybe I'll ride a plane. How did he hear about Hitler? Well, during the war. Yeah. Uh, does he know Hitler's dead? Nobody ever told him that Hitler is dead. Does he know who won the war? Min Kasavil Harbar. Some people say the British, some people say Hitler. I see, and uh, um, has he ever thought he would like to find out really who won the war? Is he curious to know? It took some time to make the boy understand this last question, and in the process, a man of about 35 who was standing nearby, a cemetery caretaker, took part in the discussion. Finally, they both answered it. The boy says he doesn't care, and the other man, the other caretaker, says, well, in the end, Hitler will win. In the end, Hitler will win? Yes. George Polk noticed that the caretaker had an eye infection, and he informed me that 90% of Egyptians suffer from eye diseases, and that the incidence of blindness is very high. I asked Mrs. Hitchman to ask the Arab what he was doing about his eye. I said, well, but do, why don't you go to some clinic or something? He says, I have no money. Are you afraid of going blind? So many persons are blind here. You see them wandering in the streets. So many persons blind. So what should I do? God is there, and if God wants me to be blind, I'll be blind. The statement, God is there, was accompanied by a gesture of pointing to heaven. The government of Sidki Pasha last summer had one absorbing internal preoccupation, and it was not that of alleviating the poverty or sickness of its people. It was the hounding of liberals. The editor of the principal newspaper of the Wafda, an opposition but not leftist political party, was arrested so was the Greek millionaire Zabini, known to be sympathetic to the anti-royalist movement in his home country. Eleven cultural, scientific, educational, and labor associations were suspended. Hundreds of people were jailed for weeks without charges. Months later, on November 8th, the New York Times reported from Cairo, and I'm quoting, The Red Scare in Egypt has passed off without proof of the existence of a communist organization. Nearly all persons arrested have been released. The roundup resulted in the detention of an assorted lot of intellectual, social reformers, labor leaders, and foreigners. Some would be described outside Egypt as liberals or socialists, but those arrested included some who were plainly capitalists, including millionaires. Others appeared to be simply opponents of the government. End of quote. At the time we were in Egypt, three months before that dispatch appeared, the assorted lot of intellectuals was in jail. And it seemed to me that the Egyptian people themselves were behind bars, behind the bars of their own ignorance. If there was any awareness of the concept of one world in ordinary Egyptian life, it must have been as rare as a well-fed child, as rare as a well-paid worker, as rare as a literate farmer.
left Cairo for India at dawn one morning on a converted York bomber and flew across the glaring deserts of Transjordan, Syria, and Iraq. Geographically, this was the middle of the Middle East. Socially, in point of progress, it was the Middle Ages. The great and terrible bond among these many countries stretching all the way from the mouth of the Nile to the mouth of the Ganges is rank poverty, disease, abysmal ignorance. We crossed the vast swamplands lying between the Euphrates and Tigris rivers and landed at the sizzling river port of Basra to refuel. Then we took off again and flew out over the Persian Gulf. The waters of the Gulf were a sickly, bleached-out blue. For nearly a thousand miles, we followed the dry, rugged west coast of Iran, and as night fell, we were droning over the Arabian Sea. In the middle of the evening, we landed at Karachi, India, a port well-known to American soldiers who served in the Far East. On the day that we were to take our recorder on the street so that you might hear the voices of Indians, religious rioting broke out between Hindus and Muslims, and our movements were blocked. In Calcutta, we found martial law when we arrived. We had to watch our step to avoid treading literally on the corpses of slain rioters. We could get no transportation to carry our recording equipment, no batteries to run it. And without recordings, whereby you could hear directly from more than a few Indian people... It would be arrogant to comment upon a situation so complex that men who have given years to the study of India's problems shrug their shoulders when you ask them about prospects of unity within any reasonable time. India, as you know, is a land divided by hundreds of languages, religions, castes, and customs. Its political problems at the moment are as difficult as those of almost any trouble spot in the world. Instead of attempting to present any rounded picture of the turbulent Indian scene as it existed last summer, we will limit our report to an interview with the one Indian leader of world renown available to our microphone during the period of our visit. He is Pandit Jawaharlal Nehru, Minister of External Affairs and Commonwealth Relations. We recorded Mr. Nehru in the modest home of his nephew. He was wearing the round white cap of the Indian National Congress Party, His sensitive face was drawn and sober. For almost an hour, we talked on a wide variety of subjects. First, about Wendell Wilkie, whose book One World he said he had read in prison while under detention by the British for political reasons in 1942. We then discussed the international situation, which at that time was badly inflamed. I asked what he considered the greatest threat to the peace. Well, I should say the greatest single threat at the present moment is the growing conflict between uh, uh, America and England on the one side, if you like to put them together, and the Soviet Union on the other. That is the biggest threat. I believe that both parties are to blame for it. Blame in the present, blame in the past, because you you can't forget the past, you can't get rid of the past. Obviously, you can't ask others to do what you are not doing yourself. And one finds repeatedly on both sides of this, whether it is Russia on the one hand or uh, other countries, Western countries, that they have done things which were wrong. And they have blamed the other party for doing the same thing, more or less. 
Mr. Nehru spoke at length of India's problems, which he said were not formed suddenly, but were the accumulation of more than a hundred years. He had bitter words for the treatment of Indians in the Union of South Africa, whose racial policy he called, quote, exactly on a par with Nazi doctrine, unquote. I asked him whether there was goodwill in India for the United States, and he replied, America is a country which attracts, for many reasons, at any rate, it has attracted me, although unfortunately I've never succeeded in reaching there yet. It is a vital country, a growing country, a frank country, and it hasn't got all the legacy of past ages which drags other countries down, complexes created. On the other hand, one has a certain sense, at any rate I have, of a certain roughness and toughness, and a strange mixture of democracy and the highest pretensions to, to freedom, and the denial of that freedom say, among the near to, to the Negroes in America. That question often troubles us because, well, we ourselves in this country have been guilty in the past, in past ages, of denying freedom to large numbers of our own people. And we are suffering for that. And I think one of the causes of our downfall in India has been the fact that we tried to suppress large numbers of our own people in the past, to get rid of that completely. And when we see that happening elsewhere, especially in a very advanced country like, like America, which attracts us so much, it is a painful thought. And uh, it colors our opinions about those American declarations of freedom. Apparently, freedom is meant for particular groups, not for all. But if we think of freedom for one world, then all this racialism and uh, one race or one nation or one country being fundamentally superior to another, that has to be given up. From the vantage point of this pleasant home in New Delhi, a city whose appearance suggests an American university campus more than an Asiatic government center, it was hard for me to imagine the vast Indian subcontinent of 700,000 villages stretching away to all compass points, to sense the stupendous poverty and struggle of its nearly 400 million people. These masses, like the relatively small population of Egypt, come within the bleak area of humanity that we call backward. Backward because of no inherent lacks, but because of economic stagnation, and total absence of opportunity. I asked Pandit Nehru what recommendations he would make toward achieving the cooperative and united world of which Wendell Wilkie spoke, and he replied, You cannot cooperate with people who are not free and who are suffering from all manner of complexes, of fear, and the rest. Therefore, those countries who have power and influence in the world today should themselves give the lead in this matter and work out as rapidly as possible the ideal of, call it the four freedoms or what you like, that no, no nation, no people should be subjected to another. No race should be considered an inferior race as a race.
end that that uh, uh, the only way really for even the most advanced nations to carry on in the future is for backward nations to come up to remove poverty and to cooperate in the task of raising humanity as a whole and not concentrate so much on a particular area of it if that viewpoint is adopted and acted up to perhaps not wholly but anyway in a large measure then maybe the whole psychological atmosphere of the world will change then probably we move much more rapidly to the one world of which Wendell Wilkie talked Mr. Nehru was looking right at America and our principal allies when he spoke of countries who have power and influence in the world today taking the lead and working out the four freedoms. Perhaps he had even defined a fifth freedom. Freedom from subjugation, prejudice, discrimination. That no, no nation, no people should be subjected to another. No race should be considered an inferior race as a race. A simple formula that but one that would make life more livable for three out of every four people alive on this earth today. have been listening to Norman Corwin, first winner of the Wendell Wilkie One World Flight Award, in the eighth of a series of broadcasts based on his recent 37,000-mile global tour. All recorded voices heard on this broadcast were transcribed in Egypt and India. Next week at the same time, One World Flight visits China and Japan. Tonight's musical score was composed and directed by Alexander Semler. Guy Della Chapa was associate director. This is Lee Vines, and this is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. He's just about halfway around the world now, and next week we'll continue to follow Norman Corwin's progress on his One World Flight series, broadcast in the winter of 1947. You heard it tonight on the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Has any literary work dominated our imaginations longer than Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley's Frankenstein? For more than 200 years, the modern Prometheus, as she called him, has appeared in every conceivable medium, probably thousands of times. You won't hear the name of Frankenstein, or of its author, in a radio play called The Return from Death, but it owes just about everything, to Miss Shelley's classic. It's an episode from April 6, 1953, The Mutual Network, and the series, The Hall of Fantasy. And now... The Hall of Fantasy. Welcome to the Hall of Fantasy. Welcome to the series of radio dramas dedicated to the supernatural, the unusual, and the unknown. Come with me, my friends. 
we shall descend to the world of the unknown and forbidden, down to the depths where the veil of time is lifted and the supernatural reigns as king. Come with me and listen to the tale of The Return from Death. You mean that you can bring him back to life? I know I can. There, everything's ready. Will you step back, David? Of course. How to turn on the machine. You'll see for yourself what I mean. How to induce the charge. How much voltage are you using? 25,000. That's enough. Now look at him, David. Alive. He was dead, but now, now he's alive. In just a moment, the Hall of Fantasy will present The Return from Death. And now for our story an original tale of fantasy by Richard Thorne entitled The Return from Death. Dr. Jason Sinclair was a brilliant man. He was one of my instructors at medical school. He gave of his knowledge freely, creating in the students a desire to learn, imparting some of his own enthusiasm for his subject into the minds of his students. I always looked forward to his classes. After I received my degree, I lost track of him for several years. But one evening when I was ready to leave the research center... Hello? May I speak to David Cummings? Speaking. David, this is Jason Sinclair. Dr. Sinclair, it's good to hear from you. I was wondering if you'd remember me. Of course I would. All of us who studied under you owe you more than we can ever repay. What are you doing this evening? Well, actually nothing. I'd like to see you, David. Why don't you come over to the house tonight? It'll be a pleasure. You still live at the same place? Yes, the world may change, David, but Jason Sinclair and his habits don't. I'll be expecting you about eight. See you, David. Come in, come in. Good to see you, Dr. Sinclair. You can forget the doctor part of it, David. Call me Jason. You're not in school now. How long has it been? I've I've lost all track of time. You received your degree in 1943. It's been ten years. <laughs> I didn't realize it was so long. You haven't changed, you know, Jason. Only ten years older, that's all. Oh, do you remember my daughter, David? I believe she was that's in... That's right. She was in my class. How are you, Elaine? Fine, David. It's good to see you again. Are you working with your father? Yes. Sit down, David. Sit down. Can I pour you a drink? Not right now, thanks. Are you still with the college, Jason? No, I left there some time ago. Oh, really? How come? I wanted to devote more time to research. I see. David, are you happy with your present position? Well, I hadn't stopped to think about it. I guess I am. That's a shame. Why do you say that? I was wondering if you'd like to work with me. I don't know. I hope you'll forgive me for hesitating, Jason, but I've... I've been with Associated Chemical for several years. I understand, David. It's only natural that you'd hesitate. Why, of course. Dad doesn't want to push you into this, David. You're perfectly free not to accept. Of course, I would like to have you with me. I can guarantee you more than you're getting now. Well, that's a pretty good inducement. I'd like to work with you, David. I'm sure you'll find it interesting. What are you working on, Jason? Come, I'll take you downstairs. Then you can see for yourself. 
Do you remember some of our discussions years ago about death and the possibility of bringing back to life a man that medical science had pronounced dead? Yes, I do. Well, that's what I've been working on. Oh? Have you had any success? Quite a lot. More than I'd expected this early. I'll show you. The rabbit you see on the table is dead. I'd like to have you examine it, if you will. Yes, he's dead, I'd say, for, for at least two hours. Very close, David. A few minutes longer, that's all. What do you intend doing? You'll see. I've already given him the preliminary injection, David, to save time. You know, of course, that all life has a connection with electricity. We think we send out small charges of electricity along the nerve network, which in turn activates our muscles. You mean that you can bring him back to life? I know I can. There, everything's ready. Will you step back, David? Of course. Now to turn on the machine. You'll see for yourself what I mean. Now to induce the charge. How much voltage are you using? 25,000. That's enough. Now look at him, David. What? He's alive. This animal's alive. Yes, David. But there's something strange about him. How do you mean? I don't know. I, I can't explain it. You're imagining it, David. You saw him dead, now you see him alive. The sight is foreign to your mind. Perhaps. I've learned the secret, David. Now we can restore to the living those who have passed into the realm of death. Although Jason Sinclair passed over my objection, I still couldn't get the thought from my mind. There was something strange about the animal. Something seemed to be missing. We went back upstairs. Jason left the room to get the papers he'd written explaining the various steps he'd taken in his experiments. I was left alone with Elaine. Did you see it? Yes. It's amazing. Are you going to work with him? I think so. David, I wish you wouldn't. Why not? Did you notice the rabbit after he returned it back to life? Yes. David, didn't it look foreign to you as if something were missing? I noticed something, but I, I couldn't put my finger on it. That's what I mean. David, I don't think you should do it. I don't see why, Elaine. Think what a boon this will be to the world. Will it, David? Well, of course. I'm not too sure about that. Elaine, you of all people should have faith in your father. I don't, though, David. Why not? Because I don't believe that once an animal is dead, it should be returned to life. It should remain dead. Because when it dies, its spirit dies with it. And when Dad brings these creatures back... The animal lives, true enough. But, David, it's like an automaton. The body may live, but the thing which gave it personality is dead. I'm still going to work with him, Elaine. Do you know what you're getting into? Dad is a precisionist. He'll experiment and experiment until finally he'll want to try it on a man. And where is that man going to come from, David? Where is he going to come from? Back now to our story, an original tale of fantasy by Richard Thorne, entitled The Return from Death. I was in the house of Jason Sinclair. A few minutes before, I'd been witness to a scene which 
It amazed me. As I saw it, I made up my mind to work with Jason. We went back upstairs, and when Jason left the room, his daughter tried to dissuade me from my decision. I'm serious, David. Where is he going to come from? I don't know. Then you're going to go through with it? Yes. I warned you, David. Remember that. Here are the papers, David. Oh, thank you. Look them over. They contain all the notes I've made on the experiment. I will, Jason. Are you going to work with me? Yes. Good. You'll have to give the organization for which you're working now at least two weeks' notice. Of course. If you like, you can live here with us. Do you have any relatives, David? No. Glad to hear that. I'll see you in two weeks. Two weeks later, I moved in with Jason Sinclair and we began working. We conducted experiments making a few changes altering the content of the preparatory injection, resetting the amount of voltage required, progressing from the lower stages of animal life ever higher. And then one night, he told me what he intended doing next. David, have you heard of Terry Whalen? Whalen? He... Oh, yes. He's going to die next week for the murder of that old man. That's right. We're going down to the prison tomorrow to see him. Why, Dad? Whalen has no relatives, no one to bury him after his death except for the state. What do you mean? I believe we can have access to his body after he's executed. You mean you intend using him as a subject? That's correct. But if we're successful, Jason, won't it, won't it be dangerous to return a killer back to life? Not if we watch him. Not if we can destroy his urge to kill. Dad, I don't think you should do it. He's a dangerous man. Nonsense, Elaine. We'll increase the amount of voltage, David. Enough to destroy that part of his brain which motivates his desire to kill. Perhaps he'll completely change. Use someone else, Dad, not Terry Whalen. Where would I get someone else, Elaine? We arose early the following day and drove out to the prison. Jason was well-known and thought highly of in official circles. We were allowed to talk to the warden, and Jason convinced him that Wayland's body would be used for medical research, but he neglected to tell him how it would be used. Then we were allowed to talk to Wayland. Just a few minutes, Dr. Sinclair. I understand. Uh, who are you? My name is Jason Sinclair, Mr. Whalen. Uh, what do you want? To talk to you. So talk? You're to be executed next week, Mr. Whalen. Look, if you come here just to tell me that, I've got a surprise for you. I already know it. I'm a doctor, Terry. We'd like to use you as the subject of an experiment. Sure, sure. Go right ahead. Not now, Terry. After you've been executed. Ah, what do you mean? Where are you from? You from one of those medical colleges? Listen, I don't go for that stuff. No, sir, if that's what don't you're here carry. for, I... I propose to bring you back to life. You mean... You mean after I'm dead? That's right. You're crazy. <laughs> you sound like you've been in stir too long. <laughs> I'm serious. We can do it. You mean... <laughs> you mean you can actually bring me back to life? That's right. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> ah, and they can't punish me a second time, can they? They can't kill me twice. <laughs> you agree to it then? Sure. Sure, Sawbones. Sure, I agree to it. Anything. Anything to get another chance. <laughs> Jason made arrangements for an ambulance to pick up Wayland's body a short time after the execution. That night... The night Whalen settled his death with the state, a storm broke. 
we stayed in the house and waited. The ambulance was already at the prison, waiting for its passenger. What time is it? Almost 12. I wish you hadn't arranged all this, Dad. Nonsense, Elaine. Well, that is, 12 o'clock. The time is to die. It's only taken three hours, even in this storm, to get back here, Jason. That's right. When they do, David, they'll have Whalen with them. waited there at the house. The storm was the perfect background for the strange mood which had seized hold of each of us. A short time after three, the ambulance pulled into the driveway and we went down and opened the basement door. They brought him in and sat him on a table. Yes, that's right. Thank you. You ready, David? I guess so. I'll prepare the hypodermic then. We'll give him 20 cc's of this. No more than that? Of course not. There. That does it. Now, help me attach the wires. Dealing with the death has always frightened me. It's foolish, my boy. My scientist, you should never allow yourself to be subjective about things. You must be completely objective. There. I believe that'll do it. Dr. Sinclair. Anything wrong, David? Maybe... Maybe we ought not go through with this. You can't turn back now. No, I suppose not. Shall we begin? Switch it on. It has a pleasant sound, hasn't it, David? What's the reading? 10,000. Increase the charge. The reading? 15,000. 20,000. 23,000. 24,000. 25,000. Shall we stop? No. We must destroy his desire to kill. 26,000. 27,000. That's enough. Turn it off. the contact microphone in his chest, David. Yes, Jason. Listen, David. You're listening to the sound of his heart, David. The beating heart of a dead man. We've succeeded. We've brought him back from death. Back now to our story. An original tale of fantasy by Richard Thorne, entitled The Return from Death. It was a wet and stormy night. Jason Sinclair hovered over the body on the table in the center of his basement laboratory. I stood just behind him, watching a dead man return to life. Listen, David. You're listening to the sound of his heart. They've brought him back from death. Remove the contact, Mike. Jason. Look at his eyes. They're open. Yes, I see. Whalen? Can you hear me? Answer me, Whalen. Uh, Think what uh, this means, David. 
He can tell us what it was like to be dead. The first man ever to know the secret. Waylon, answer me. He the straps taken off. All right, let's loosen them. Uh, how do you feel, Waylon? Look out, Chasen. He's getting off the table. Nothing to be afraid of, David. He didn't limp before, did he? No. Some of the motor section of the brain must have been damaged. He's coming toward us. Oh, you might frighten him. Look at his eyes, Jason. They're not human. Quiet, David. He's trying to say something. I can't understand you, Waylon. What are you trying to say? He's patting you on the back. Trying to thank me, no doubt. All right, that's enough, Waylon. I understand you appreciate... Take his hand away from my throat, David. That's enough, Waylon. Ah! Look out, David. I see him. You knocked him out. Yes. You shouldn't have done that. Are you serious, Jason? I was protecting myself and you for that matter. He wouldn't have hurt me. You didn't seem to think that when he had his fingers around your throat. Well, I admit that I was frightened. All right. What are we going to do with him? Well, keep him down here. Teach him to talk again. Seems to have lost the power of coherent speech. Look at him, Jason. Why? Is there anything wrong? I don't know. But looking at his face now, I have the strangest feeling that he's not really a human being anymore. That something's missing. That he's a mad, vicious creation of a devil. You're talking like a fool, David. Perhaps you're tired. I know I am. He can't get out of here. He'll lock the doors and the windows are barred. Let's go upstairs. All right, Jason. But remember what I said. We placed him back on the table, taking the precaution of strapping him down in case he should awaken. Then Jason locked the doors and took the keys with him. We went upstairs. I've been waiting for you. Then I thought you were asleep. No, no, I couldn't sleep. Should have come downstairs and joined us then, Elaine. You brought him back? Yes. How did he react? Not as well as he might have, Elaine. Anything wrong? No, nothing. He tried to kill your father. What? He was merely trying to thank me, David. He's probably suffering from a sort of amnesia. He doesn't realize his own strength. He's like a baby. You know, that's not true, sir. He's an inhuman, vicious killer. Oh, you should never have done this, Dad. Would you both be quiet? I'm tired of listening to you. What? I don't like to admit it. But I know I've been wrong. I'm sorry, my dear. I lost my temper. I shouldn't have. I know it's because I think you're both partially right. How do you mean, Jason? There is something inhuman about that thing that was a man downstairs. I noticed it tonight when his hands were around my throat. In his eyes, that intangible something that makes an animal a man is missing. In its place, I see... The eyes of a madman with no soul. What are we going to do? I don't know. Maybe we haven't failed, sir. Maybe because we're tired, we think we have. It may look completely different to us after a few hours of sleep. What was that? Came from downstairs. Whelan. We had him strapped to the table. He must have gotten loose. That was the door. He's trying to knock the door down. We have to stop him. But how? Elaine, get my gun. All right, Dan. I'll be right back. I tried not to admit it, David, but that was only lying to myself. 
You and Elaine brought me to my senses. You were right, right all along, about the rabbit, about the other animals, and especially about Wayland. He must be destroyed. He's a monster without feeling. Here, Dad, here's the gun. Thanks. I'm going down there and... You don't have to go down there. That was the door. Listen. Listen, he's coming up the stairs. Turn the lights out, David. Yes, sir. I'm going out in the hall to meet him. No, Dad. No, let him come in here. Stay right over here on this side of the room. All right, Dave. Be quiet. He's coming. I don't want to shoot him. We'll have to take him alive. You'll have to shoot him. Oh, yes, Dad. He's just outside the door. David, I'm afraid. Be quiet. There he is. Where you He's searching for me. Shh, be quiet. He's looking this way. Oh. Oh, it's me. Use the gun, Jason. Now, David. Yes. I see it. It's composed. It looks human again. Perhaps we're not meant to tamper with the natural laws of life and death, David. I see that now. But it took Wayland's return from death to prove it to me. Tonight's tale of the unusual, the terrifying, the unknown. Join us again when next we journey down the corridors of the Hall of Fantasy to hear another strange tale of the supernatural. All characters and events portrayed in these programs are fictional, and any similarity to actual events or persons, living or dead, is purely coincidental. In response to a listener request, an episode of The Hall of Fantasy. That one was called The Return from Death, and it came from the spring of 1953. It brings us almost to the end of the big broadcast tonight. We're going to close with an extraordinary recording that was a number one hit on Top 40 Radio 50 years ago this week. As so much old-time radio, it was relevant then, and it's perhaps even more relevant today. It's from an album that Rolling Stone magazine placed first on its 2020 list of the greatest albums of all time. From that LP, What's Going On? It's a song recorded in March of 1971, written by Washington native Marvin Gaye, along with James Nix Jr., with the vocal and piano of Mr. Gaye, backed up by Bobby Hall playing bongos, members of the famous Motown Funk Brothers and the Detroit Symphony Orchestra. It's Marvin Gaye's number one hit record from exactly 50 years ago on the Tamla label, Inner City Blues, Make Me Wanna Holler. For co-producer Jill Arald Bailey and audio engineers Barnaby Bristol and Mike Kidd, this is Murray Horwitz. Thanks for listening. Have a great week, and please join us here next Sunday. Good night, everybody. 